Who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, somebody lied. I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Welcome to Now Playing's Amazing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. Can Spider-Man come out to play? Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. The real crime would be not to finish what we started. Hosted by Jacob. No sparkles! Stuart. Not everyone has a happy ending. And Arnie. Ah, you're funny, guy! Ooh, my spider sense is tingling. If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if your spider sense is tingling, it's because this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language. So listener discretion is advised. We're gonna have a hell of a time. Go get him, Tiger. Today we're discussing The Amazing Spider-Man 2, starring Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Jamie Foxx, Dane DeHaan, directed by Mark Webb. I'm Arnie, the electrifying co-host of Now Playing. Stuart on holiday. Hold on, I'm naked. I'm naked here. All right, this is Jacob. And this is a change of pace for I'm actually recording with pants on for once because Stuart's in the room with me. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Yes, it is true. It is Stuart in L.A. for this recording. I have been on vacation. That meant, of course, that I had to work some time in for Spider-Man because it was a holiday without a superhero movie. <laughs> the things we do for now playing, folks. Well, I've seen it three times, so I'm okay. I saw it opening night, Thursday night, IMAX. There was a free poster, so why not? <laughs> I guess Thursday night's opening night now. I, I always thought it was sneak preview night, but they start at 7 p.m. instead of midnight. So, yeah, I was there Thursday night. I saw it IMAX 3D. They were giving away some collectible 3D glasses. I, that's not why I went. It just happened to be the showtime I chose. Yeah, I then saw it again Friday night. That was my note-taking experience. And then I saw it this morning, so I was fresh for this podcast. So... You got questions, I've got answers. Well, I got a question right off the bat. Usually, I have nothing to say about the 3D, because usually it's 3D conversion that I don't notice. Everything looks like a 2D movie with every now and then a bullet or something CG flies past me. Here, I saw this in Real D, and my first question is, was the Real D awesome, or did they actually film this with 3D cameras? I normally see 3D in IMAX. This is my first Real D, and I was quite aware that I was watching a three-dimensional film. This was not filmed in 3D versus the last one where they got the digital 3D cameras going and everything, and it was a big tech demo. This one was filmed on regular film in an anamorphic format and post-converted, but I'll say... I only saw it once in 3D. It was IMAX 3D. There were certain scenes, mostly the big action showcases, where the 3D was spectacular. Yeah, I'm going to give a thumbs up, at least for the 3D thus far. Uh, maybe it's because there were so many scenes where they used bullet time or web time and they would pause and, you know, it was a still picture and it really emphasized the three-dimensional aspect of the film, but not one that I'll complain about as far as 3D goes. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to say maybe my most controversial statement of the podcast. See it in Realty. I think that they may be doing a better job because I've seen a lot of these post-conversion jobs in IMAX, and it's never looked as pronounced as it did in this Realty projection. Or maybe you need to see it in Springfield. I don't know. And that's funny because I went to IMAX to see it in 3D because Captain America, the real D, looked like crap. And in IMAX, it looked really good in 3D. So Yeah, that said, I did see it in IMAX. So maybe it's that big screen. It's brighter. But maybe that has something to do with the projection. But speaking of the last movie being filmed in 3D, it's only been two years since we reviewed The Amazing Spider-Man. And kind of a controversial show with... Us saying at the time, it might be Superman Returns, one and done, and we're not done. Yeah, that was my prediction, and obviously I'm wrong, because I was certain that they would give up on this. I wouldn't think that Sony would give up on this. I wouldn't think that they'd let the rights revert to Marvel unless they were paid more than what they're going to make for all of the movies that they're going to churn out in the next five years. But I really didn't think that anything in that last movie begged a continuation. Have either of you revisited the original? I own it on Blu-ray, watched it once for fun in the past two years, and then I watched it the night before I saw Amazing Spider-Man 2, so I was completely into the secrets and their costs. I rewatched it. It wasn't for fun, as you put it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I basically didn't remember it. And, you know, I do believe in giving things a second chance. Maybe I was too hard on it, and I thought, you know, it happened with Star Trek. I rewatched the movie years later, and I thought, hey, you know what? I had something up my butt, and it was a much better <laughs> movie than I gave it credit for. Didn't happen with Amazing Spider-Man. I still think it's a pretty drab, dull, lifeless movie. But I stand by my review entirely. Yeah, I didn't bother going back and watching it. I remembered pretty much most of it. I did want to kind of experience this. I know one of my big complaints, and I think, Stuart, it was a complaint of his, too, with that first one. It felt like an episode from a TV show, and it was just all these loose strings, and well, we'll pick them up next time. So I actually kind of wanted to see Amazing Spider-Man 2 as a non-film buff for now playing. You know, how would the average person going? Would this seem like another episode where if you didn't miss the pilot TV show, you're lost here? Could you kind of just watch this and get what's going on? So that's why I didn't revisit. Plus, I just didn't like that last film. So. <laughs> there we go. There's the real reason. I didn't want to see it again. I don't blame you. I don't see it again. It doesn't get any better. And I stand by my review at the time as well, where you can go back and listen to it. But I'm the sole one who gave it a recommend. Still think it's a recommendable film. But I definitely think that you two weren't the only ones who voiced the complaints you were. I think I see the pendulum swinging in a different direction with the film we're going to discuss today. Well, then I guess that means you should give us the plot and we should get into it. Everything is going good for Peter Parker. He's graduating from high school. He has the girl, Gwen Stacy. He's beloved by the city for his heroics as Spider-Man. Well, everyone except his Daily Bugle boss, J. Jonah Jameson. But Peter is haunted by visions of George Stacy, Gwen's dad, who died in the last movie, and to whom Peter made a vow. A vow that he would stay away from Gwen. And so he finally agrees to that, and the two young lovers break up. But with Gwen and Peter broken up, Peter needs someone to turn to, so he reconnects with his old BFF, Harry Osborn, son of billionaire businessman Norman Osborn. Harry was sent away to boarding school when he was 10, but called back for Norman's death, dying of retroviral hyperplasia? I don't know if it's real. I don't think it is. It, it is. It's what took out uh, Ozzy Osbourne, actually. <laughs> he had green skin and warts. And I think he did that last episode. He had fingernails like Norman yeah, did. <laughs> sure did. 
So now Harry is heir to all of Norman's legacy. He's CEO of Oscorp, but also infected with the fatal disease. In looking through Norman's work with Richard Parker, Harry realizes the spiders are the key to the cure, and that Spider-Man must be the result of the radioactive spiders. As all the spiders were destroyed in the aftermath of the lizard's attack and public scrutiny of Oscorp's animal experiments, Harry is out for blood. Spider-Man's blood, believing it holds the cure. Peter is also researching his father's work. May finally reveals that Richard Parker was labeled a traitor, trying to sell the work he did for Oscorp to enemy nations. But through sleuthing, Peter finds Richard's secret lab in the subway. We're going to talk about this. <laughs> that reveals the truth. Norman was selling the work to help fund the research. And when Richard refused to go along with it, Osborne set Parker up for a fall. And that rivalry goes to the next generation as Harry turns to Peter Parker for help connecting to Spider-Man, but Spider-Man refuses to give up the blood, so Harry teams with Electro, who seems to be the main villain here, but isn't too impactful on the plot, hence why I'm only now bringing him up. <laughs> He's a former Oscorp electrician named Max Dillon, who, through an accident involving electrical wires and what I assume to be mutated electric eels became a Dr. Manhattan-looking embodiment of electricity. In his human form, Max had an obsession with Spider-Man, having been saved once by the wall crawler. But an earlier showdown in Times Square gave Max a grudge against the web-slinger, and he wants a rematch. So Harry springs Max from Arkham Asylum from the Ravencroft Institute, and Electro takes down the city power grid. Airplanes are going to crash into each other in four minutes if Spider-Man doesn't save the day, which he does with help from Gwen Stacy. They overload Electro and he explodes. But the fight's not over as Harry shows up. He injected himself with the spider venom, hoping for a cure, but it actually worsened his disease and gave him a new haircut. So Harry has climbed into a powered healing suit and flown a glider to confront Spider-Man. Seeing Spider-Man with Gwen, Harry figures out the wall crawler's true identity and, for revenge, decides to take Gwen hostage. He drops her from a great height and attacks Spider-Man, Peter trying to defend himself and save his girlfriend. Harry is knocked out, but Gwen takes a fall, and Spider-Man webs her, but doesn't save her. She's killed in the fall. So, morning, Spider-Man takes a five-month break, but some helpful words from Aunt May about boxing up Uncle Ben's stuff, which must have been sitting out for two years now, <laughs> gets Peter back in the red and blue tights to go off and fight the Rhino! <laughs> As credits roll. There's actually a lot going into this movie we're going to talk about as we go through. Not a lot of it has to do with the plot, though. And that's a plot summary. That's why I didn't bring up the rhino in the earlier fight or even the opening scenes. Where we start not with Spider-Man or Peter Parker, but back in what my math is putting at about the year 2000, and Peter's parents, Richard and Mary Parker, once again on the run with some replayed footage from last time and some new scenes. I mentioned in the first podcast that this director seems to like a opening shot that kind of sets up the metaphor and the motifs of the film. We begin with a watch face and then watch him poison and kill a bunch of spiders. This one's all about ticking clocks and mortality. That's clearly the emphasis here. The opening is basically to illuminate what we were wondering last time. How did the parents die in the plane crash? Did they die in the plane crash? It does appear to be the case. Maybe. <laughs> I think so. I think mommy is dead. 
Mommy took a bullet, and Mommy was looking really sleepy in the passenger seat while everyone else was flying around in the uh, gravitational forces of the falling plane. I'll agree. Campbell Scott may make a return. Mm. I think we've seen the end of M. Beth Davids. Yes. Yeah, it just made me feel old, uh, you know, realizing that this Peter Parker was born, what, in the late 90s, probably just soon after I graduated high school. Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint this. These are his parents, and there's, what, internet on this airplane? They're trying to upload something. Yeah. They have a satellite uplink, Jacob. And I had to think about this. I was working in the internet starting in 1996. So I'm like, where were we in 2000? All right. We did have satellite. We did have ethernet. We did have Sony laptops. I can go with this. <laughs> it still took about an hour to download a song. I'm just going to say, no wonder the whole thing is about flipping the laptop open and closed and uploading this Roosevelt file. In 2000, though, I'm glad that they had the distortion they did. If you're listening to our Matrix podcast, around 2002, we were starting to watch Flight of the Osiris online and all of this, but it looked like shit. So <laughs> I think they were technically accurate. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff I, I'm waiting as I'm watching this film. Where is this going to go are we gonna get an answer are we gonna find out what roosevelt is we know there's some file or something called roosevelt that they're trying to upload before they die this is pivotal for me because that's what upset me so much with that last film it was like here's some mystery parents ran away we don't know what happens well it starts off right away with these parents and we're getting a little bit more of that mystery now now we got this file that's floating out there and i'm i'm just hoping that file means something for this film and not for the third one or some spin-off that's coming up yeah, I having just watched Amazing Spider-Man 1, though, feel really bad for Peter. Because if you remember how that one started, he was playing hide-and-go-seek with his dad, and he find shoes and a broom. Turns out his dad was in the basement working, so that's a great way to self-babysit. We're going to play hide-and-go-seek, <laughs> go off to edit a podcast. I thought that was very strange. I'm like, I thought they were playing a game, and and yes, by tying in directly, that was that moment, right? When yes. he runs upstairs, and his kid's in the office, and things have been torn up, that's the identical scene from his perspective that we saw from Peter's perspective in the first movie. So, that is at the exact same time. Alright. Yeah, that's a terrible way to play hide and go see <laughs> or a great one it depends on your outlook i think it's genius parenting richard parker <laughs> mind ahead of his time but jacob to your point about will we find the answers this time or next that was something i was definitely worried about this time and i mentioned last time i wasn't sure if the parents were dead i know from reading all kinds of spider-man comics that the parents came back but it turned out they were agents of the red skull and all this stuff going on i think that they heard your and Stewart's complaints because as we go through this one, I think they put a neat and tidy bow on the parents' dilemma from the last movie. I'm not saying that if there's a third one and they bring back Mark Webb that we might not have another Richard Parker involvement in a plot. I think that this saga seems to be about what the parents did and the children dealing with it and so on, but... I don't think, like last time, it's you have to pay your next $20 to find out the answers. My big question, were the parents really dead? When you see a newspaper article that says died in plane crash, that's suspicious to me until they actually film the plane crash and show <laughs> this happening. Yeah, we get a complete story here. This does not feel like an episode of television. My worries went away as this film progressed. Whether the story is good or not, we'll be discussing that over the next couple of hours probably. But my biggest complaint with that last Spider-Man film that it was a tease. It wasn't a complete story that that has been rectified here. And the mystery of these parents, Roosevelt, we will find all this out. This is a self-contained story. 
Yeah, I have no more questions about them. I hope they don't actually labor it when they get to Amazing 3. We got it. Let's go on. It's actually, I feel like the answers are a little disappointing, actually. I mean, they were good guys who wanted to do the good thing and basically attacked Oscorp and ran away. Yeah, and that's the big mystery this whole time. I never bought that they did anything wrong. I mean, in we're kind of teased. The only bit of Richard Parker's video we see at the beginning is, they're going to say terrible things about me. And of course I'm thinking, yeah, because they set you up and you're running. I mean, I understand this. I never once thought they were bad. It wasn't until my second viewing that I realized, I think we were supposed to think they were bad. But Yeah, there's nah. a... There's a scene later on where Peter confronts Aunt May about his parents, and she tells this story that what the FBI gave her, that they were criminals or they were taking payment for something. You saw it three times, Ari. I'm sure you remember all the details. But it was basically that making them out to be the bad guy and, like, she had struggled. Did she believe that or not? Uh, yeah, I never bought into that they were up to something nefarious. I, They never sold that to me, but they definitely try to make you think that. But I want to give this opening some serious credits for having a really exciting fight scene without any wall crawling or electric bolts or anything. I never expected a good human versus human fight scene in a Spider-Man movie, but as the plane goes down and they're kind of into this zero gravity situation with this assassin flight attendant who killed the pilot of the ship and he's come out to stop the upload to Roosevelt and he has a parachute. I don't think he cares if he shoots them or they die in a plane crash, but he plans to get out with a parachute and Richard Parker and Mary Parker have a fight with him. Mary shot early on, as Stewart said, but I actually really liked this fight. Yeah, you know what? I think this fight, it's going to symbolize how I feel about much of this film. I, I don't understand the logistics like this Pilot walks out and he's acting all friendly, but he's washing his hands because I guess he just beat the real pilot to death and he's, you know, slowly going to pull out a gun like he could have just walked out, shot Peter's parents, jumped out of the plane with his parachute, been on with it. Oh, no, he couldn't. The gun was in the drawer by the sink. He still took a long. <laughs> OK, why was that? Why wouldn't you carry the gun with you? Like, it's that's what I'm saying. Like, do I totally believe like if you're really trying to kill these two, this is how you go about it? No, but it's an entertaining fight. I, I Yeah, I like the zero G. I was wondering, you know, did they use some of those tactics where they like drop the big barrel set where so you actually get that kind of movement going on like they did with Apollo 13 or was this all just CGI but there there are some good scenes here yeah I thought it was decent I thought they did a good job with the fight I wasn't prepared for a fight I thought that this one would be mopey flashbacks I didn't know we'd get an action scene so that was nice and I'm gonna talk about this fight again when we reach the end because when I watched this the second time I realized this opening fight very much parallels the end fight between Peter and Harry and to that point, it also parallels the next scene. Plane is falling down. What do we see next? Spider-Man falling down, almost as if he jumped out of a plane. I don't know how he got as high as he did <laughs> as he descends into New York City. I have to say, I was a little bit worried when I saw this scene because the plane's crashing. We cut to the Spider-Man logo. I said I saw this in IMAX. I went to a new theater. I'd never been to this IMAX in Edwardsville, Illinois before. It was the closest IMAX. It was a Thursday night. So I go, and I'm thinking this is a janky-ass IMAX. The whole place smells like cat piss. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's definitely a janky-ass anything if it smells like cat piss, no matter how nice the image is. Before it ever begins, Marjorie and the other friend we went with say, can we never come back to this theater again? And then the Spider-Man logo comes up and it's shaky. And I'm like, oh, mother. 
<laughs> is it really going to be so bad that the camera is... Oh, you thought it was coming out of the sprockets? Yes. Oh, yeah. Even though it was digital 3D projection. That's true. I thought that maybe the lens was out there shaking or something <laughs> was going on. I was so happy that it was Spider-Man falling and actually, cat piss or no, there was great picture and sound in Edwardsville. So there's your backhanded compliment, Edwardsville. <laughs> But yeah, that's actually, they show that in the trailers. I'm going to give this movie some props, too. They had some marvelous CGI here. The wrinkles of the fabric as he is doing this free fall, the amount of detail. I just pity the poor computers and their hundreds and thousands of hours <laughs> of rendering work, but it's worth it. It looks really good. Yeah, one of the things I struggled with the Raimi films, and again, there here's 10 years of CGI advancement, but there always was the a weightlessness there wasn't quite the real world physics that applied to that toby Maguire spider-man when he was cgi floating around here you know they definitely took the time to put in those details the folds of fabric and it enhances the experience you know i it, intellectually i know that that is a bunch of ones and zeros created <laughs> to look like a spider-man but it looks so dang real when you add those little details it, it really sells it you haven't gotten to the point yet where you're looking at the screen you just see the green lines vertically going down i'm, I'm almost there <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, best web slinging in any Spider-Man movie. I, I gotta say, once he reaches the same height as all of the skyscrapers, again, where did he jump from? I don't know. But that first person stuff, when he's swinging and we actually see from his point of view, his hand open and it, the web shoot out, they tried that in the last movie and I think we kind of dinged it as looking like a first person video game. Here, it looks really natural. It's really exciting. It, it's really at the pinnacle of what they can do with special effects. I was a little worried though because this opening scene he's chasing a armored truck that broke out of oscorp and there's a helicopter there reporting this i'm wondering if the helicopter gave spider-man a ride maybe he jumped off the helicopter <laughs> to begin okay but when he's web swinging and this entire chase for the plutonium which we'll get into when i saw this in imax i was a little bit nervous because I didn't think it looked good at all. I thought it looked really cartoony in 3D. In 2D, it got a lot more of a pass, and only the scenes where he's actually reaching for the plutonium in the back of the truck looked cartoony. But initially, I thought this whole thing reminded me of the Sunday morning Spider-Man cartoon series that's on right now. Maybe what really sold it for me, because I did see NIMAX 3D and cartoony. Ah, there, there was those moments when he's juggling the, what are those, jars or cans of plutonium, vials, whatever those that plutonium is in. When he's, yeah, th there's some jokes there. But for the most part, I, th I thought this was an exciting chase and i really got into it. i enjoyed this and you know the best compliment i was able to give the previous film was the acting and that really sold it here again andrew garfield th this is the best peter parker those rainy films may be better but as far as a, a spider-man peter parker with all the jokes and lightheartedness he really pulls it off or at least his voiceover the stuntman <laughs> or cgi character doing this stuff pulls it off for me i i really enjoyed this spider-man and all his little quips it felt like a marked difference from the last one. All the action in the last one, there was that gloomy, drab, it was like a filter. I think the filter's called Nolan. And like all <laughs> of the scenes felt like they had the portentous weightiness, like we were really supposed to take this seriously. Here with this opening, I get the fact that they're playing this light and fast. It reminded me of Spider-Man cartoons. It reminded me of the Spider-Man comics I have read. It felt like they were going for, yes, a younger audience, and yes, a more silly vibe, 
but that's probably the way to go. It didn't work last time. So yeah, I, I felt a little bit of relief that it was going to just be kind of a simple, silly story. That's something that I was thinking during this opening as well, is it cannot be overstated the importance of the youth audience of Spider-Man versus the Avengers and Batman and Captain America and all of that. Spider-Man is truly an all-ages type of thing in the way of, like, say, Pixar. And I loved Spider-Man when I was three. I love Spider-Man now that I'm 13 times that age. And I think this movie is the first Spider-Man film that really has scenes that play for that five-year-old audience. And this opening where they're chasing, poor, poor, what the hell are you doing here, Paul Giamatti? is for that short attention span, short audience. Yeah, the only thing kids love more than Spider-Man is the guy from Sideways. Yeah. <laughs> Good casting, guys. I, I do love that about Paul Giamatti. Like, if you haven't seen Shoot 'Em Up, where he plays like this over-the-top cartoony villain, go see that. There's a certain joy to Giamatti that he brings. But I do agree that this is the all-ages film, and definitely there are moments that are going to satisfy the five-year-old and... There are moments because it's satisfying that five-year-old that I'm going to cringe. We'll get there. And uh, they're definitely, I think, this kind of action, you know, this is the teen audience. They're going to love this stuff. I don't know if this ever achieves anything that's real enjoyable for an adult, but I'm going with this. It's tapping into that 15-year-old me where I'm watching, you know, this version of Spider-Man who loves skateboarding and doing kickflips, flipping around New York City and catching the bad guys. This is fun stuff for me. I was slouching in my seat. I need to state, I went into this movie... With the absolute lowest of expectations. Okay, I don't know if you could have gone in with lower than Stuart and myself, but okay. No, seriously. I went in expecting Catwoman. Wow, wow. I went in expecting this to be the utter worst Spider-Man movie. So many villains. I've been reading about all their plans. They're going to have a Spider-Universe in cinema. They're going to do a Sinister Six spinoff. They're going to do a Venom spinoff. They're going to do all these movies. And I just kept thinking Iron Man 2 times a thousand. And then seeing all of the trailers I've seen, I went in just expecting to have to suffer through this movie. And the fact that they were giving away free tickets, I ended up with eight free tickets to this movie. <laughs> Buy a DVD, two free tickets. Buy an f- action figure, here's a free ticket. You couldn't send me one? I had to pay 16 bucks to see this. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he saw it three times. You could take the whole neighborhood. So I went in just expecting the worst. And in this scene with Paul Giamatti hamming it up with a barely there Russian accent. I mean, it's there. It's just barely Russian. And the not a shaker. Are you a hugger? I am a killer. I'm, oh my God. Is this what the movie is? I expected Batman and Robin, not just because Electro looked like Mr. Freeze. (laughs) And from this scene, I'm just like, screw me. I'm going to have to sit through Batman and Robin, the Spider-Man version. I actually thought at this moment that Turn Off the Dark would be better than the movie I'm about to watch. How funny, because that was my opinion going into the film. I was like, I thought the last movie was the worst Spider-Man movie, and this is the one. The buzz, I stayed away from it. But how could you? I mean, if you were on Earth in the last month, (laughs) you've seen something about this movie coming out. I mean, it was ridiculous. Any TV set, any billboard, it's just been in my face. And the little vibe that I had heard 
heard from other people was this one was worse than the last one. This one was no good. There was a real disgruntled quality that I was hearing from the people that had seen it. So my opinion was that I was going to see something extremely bad. Yes, like you said, Catwoman or Batman and Robin quality, Green Lantern. And this scene kind of set the expectations much higher. I felt like, okay, it's Kitty, and my preference is always a more realistic take on superheroes, so it's not geared for me. This won't be one of my favorites, but I also felt like it was much better than the last time. And I don't know, Giamatti looked like he was having fun. It was strange, I, I gotta admit. It was uh, strange to see him in that context. It was the tattoo more than anything. Across his forehead, yeah. And a, a hammer and sickle on his ankle. How do you get that forehead tattoo and not have your skull cap removed at some point in the movie? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, here's my thing, you, you know... Again, I, I'm having fun here. I'm not taking it too seriously. How could I after that last Amazing Spider-Man film? I, I'm hoping to just be entertained by this point. But if I'm looking at this critically, if I was looking at this as an adult, right now I'm being enjoyed in a teenage frame of mind. This is some fun action. There's some funny moments. But like, there's this whole plutonium thing, the plutonium heist. This plutonium never plays any part in the story. We never find out that Giamatti was stealing this plutonium to power up a rhino suit. Like that. That's the thing. This is totally Giamatti Giamatti will come back for 10 seconds at the end of this film, but it has no bearing on the rest of the story. It's just a way to introduce Spider-Man. I, I think if this was tighter storytelling, then yeah, this whole heist would have played some part of this plot that's going on. Well, Jacob, if you want that, read the comic. There's an integral comic that it bridges the gap between Spider-Man 1 and 2 that explains Russian mobsters are stealing high-end tech for weaponry and it tells us why Spider-Man's suit is so different looking. Don't tell me that. I want to believe this is a self-contained story. That's a compliment <laughs> I just gave it. <laughs> I actually do think it's a little bit important about the new Spider-Man suit because Mark Webb did go on record. He kind of gave a mea culpa, you know, they kind of screwed up Spider-Man's outfit last time with the gold eyes and everything else. And they wanted to go more iconic. He said he was trying to make the last suit, believe it or not, realistic, saying that the gold small eyes were more realistic as they were like sunglasses, but he realized that Spider-Man fans hold the costume near and dear, so we have this one which is more comic booky. But in the middle of all of this lightheartedness, there is a buzzard kind of flying around. There is a specter of death in the form of Dennis Leary that's sort of been chasing Peter. He's, he appears first in the squad car while uh, Peter is, or I should say Spider-Man is astride the truck that Giamatti is driving and we are reminded that indeed graduating Gwen Stacy uh, she's got a ticking clock herself and if you didn't know it from the last movie that she was dead meat did you hear her valedictorian speech oh my god first of all I was happy to see Dennis Leary was brought back even if he does look like the car he's riding in is full of farting guys I mean that <laughs> facial expression but I'm like hey they got Dennis Leary back he is the specter of death, the reminder of the vow. We talked at the last podcast about how in the comics, Gwen Stacy took a death. And I'm like, will it be this one? Emma Stone was signed for three films. And I'm going to reveal, I think Webb and Arad planned to spread this all out over a trilogy. The father mystery, the Gwen Stacy thing. Everyone was signed for three movies. 
Why kill her now? I think they heard complaints like you two voiced on our last podcast, and they're like, screw it. Let's make the continuing saga be the personal one, but let's give people their answers. And the moment I hear Gwen Stacy up there and she's talking about life is precious because it ends, I'm like, okay, (laughs) one of two ways. Either you're dedicating the speech to your father, who you never mention, or you're dead meat. Oh, you're not going to talk about your dad on stage? Bye-bye. Yeah, the only thing missing where Vulture's like playing with her tassel or something like that is very clear to me that this, she might as well have just jumped into a grave after she walked off the stage. It was like, oh, so dead. So, so dead. But I did see this movie with my mother. I am here on vacation. I'm seeing family. She had no idea. All the way to the end, my mom made a little gasp. So not everyone is as savvy as us comic book spoiled people. Yeah, I, I mean, the audience, it, it surprised a lot of the audience what happens later on with Gwen. I wasn't sure because I... I Arnie, I, I was in that mind frame. Oh, they're going to stretch this out. This is going to be the capper for part three. I, I just I didn't know until we got to the end where it becomes clearly obvious that, oh, she's done for because I know how she dies and I see what's going on. But it was a question. Will she die in this one or the next one? Yeah, it's now been completely spoiled. I was glad I saw the movie Thursday because on Friday, every comic book site, and again, comic people, all of a sudden start posting retrospectives. Remember when Gwen Stacy died in the comic? Even if we're not spoiling the movie, let's put all of this focus on her comic death. I mean, if I hadn't seen this movie till Saturday, I still would have known. But yes, that speech, it's just a little too perfectly, hey, it's okay that I'm going to die because I have all this insight into how life is precious because it's short. And speaking of short life, Stan Lee's still around and he's got his cameo here. Yeah, this this has got to be the one of the weakest cameos. It's him sitting in the crowd at uh, high school graduation. I actually retroactively found it to be better because I'm like, whose great grandparent is he at this graduation? Then I remembered, he works at the school. He's the librarian. So he's, Oh, right. Yes, that's right. And so when he says, I know that guy, because he sees Peter with the mask, he was there when Spider-Man was fighting the lizard. Okay, that makes a little bit more sound. I'm like, oh, they're just making a joke, because he helped create Spider-Man. And this is a little bit of a surprise. I got to say, I thought the reason to reboot this was to have the high school years for these two. I thought they were a high school couple. The fact that they're starting this with graduation and jettisoning them up in the into the real world was a bit of a surprise. It seems to me like we never did get that version of Spider-Man on screen. And I mentioned in our very first Spider-Man movie review, not counting those Chinese webs and dragons challenges and all of that, that Joe Quesada, CEO of Marvel, said that Parker never should have left high school. That said, I think there's just a reality when you start casting actors who are getting into their late 20s that you gotta age them somewhat and they just need to look age appropriate. And unless you're going to start casting actual young people, you've got to have them graduate at some point. But yeah, I was a little bit shocked that they did it so early as well, especially with all of this motif of ending and things. I could have seen the end of this film as being Peter's graduation. Maybe metaphorically it is, but we're going to start with him getting a diploma. Right. Starts with the graduation, ends with a funeral. Uh, They were working with that. The themes are here. They come back quite often. 
Emma Stone, is she in her late 20s? She's still got a youthful vibe. I It never was a problem for me. I got a problem that she's working as a scientist. I think <laughs> she's way too young for that. That was a problem in the last film, though. Yeah. She was like the smartest intern ever. But they're going to miss her in part three. I got to say, now, I had heard a rumor that this was originally going to be a Gwen versus Mary Jane movie, right? Well, no. This was never going to be Gwen versus Mary Jane. They filmed scenes with Mary Jane, and it's an actress who's in that Divergent. Yeah, yeah. Shailene Woodley. She's done a lot of stuff, actually. Yeah, and they decided that that scene was too good. She was too good as Mary Jane, and when Gwen died, the whole audience is like, well, that's okay. You got Mary Jane over there. So they completely cut her out of this movie to focus more on the Peter-Gwen romance so that the death at the end could be more tragic. There is another Peter Parker love interest floating around this movie, a third. But yeah, Gwen fell to the floor, Mary Jane fell to the cutting room floor. Okay, <laughs> well, I get it, but I, my expectation was that we would see less of Emma Stone here. I actually still think that she's one of the strongest assets in this series, and I love the fact she's not an egg. She knows he's Spider-Man. She's calling him while he's doing this crime fighting. She does not take it personally that he thinks saving New York and plutonium is more important <laughs> than her graduation speech. How can you not respect her. After all of those dismal Mary Jane fights from the Raimi years, this is such a better foil for our Peter Parker. I think the best compliment I gave The Last Amazing Spider-Man was the acting, and I, I loved the characters, even though I hated the lines they were saying and, and the story that was being told. I did enjoy Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield. One of the best developments was, you know, that folly of youth, that Peter made this promise to Gwen's father that he would stay away from her to keep her safe and at the very end of that film he breaks that promise and he reveals who he is and so i wanted to see that played out i was somewhat confused you know that after high school graduation they go to have chinese takeout and they get in this fight he breaks up with her or she breaks up with him gwen's not going to take it from anyone she's the one that breaks up with the man but what i liked was that it was revealed that this is not the first time because i thought oh this is weird if they're just going to jump straight to this and they this is the first time they've had this fight i've wanted to see this play out in the relationship i i like that they at least dropped the line that this has been an ongoing tension in their relationship if we're gonna skip the high school years i i do want to know that this was something peter was struggling with yeah, it wasn't until after we'd done our podcast and the YouTube videos, how it should have ended, did their Amazing Spider-Man, and they start with that scene of the best promises are the ones you can't keep. Then it has Superman and Batman saying, Spider-Man, you really did that? You ignored her during her dad's funeral? You leave her all alone during her time of mourning? And now you're trying to get some? <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little bit worried about that. I think that they didn't know at the end of part one where they wanted to go with part two. They kind of had them getting back together. And now, okay, we're just going to break right up again. I agree with you, Stuart, that I like their relationship. I like that Gwen says, you know, I like that you're Spider-Man, but I love Peter Parker more. I think that's a much better dynamic than we've ever had for a yeah. Peter Parker Spider-Man on screen. And Jacob, I'm going to agree with you. In the last movie, I dinged Andrew Garfield. I didn't think he was a very good Peter Parker. I still think his origin story is deplorable and he's not very good in it. It was a recommend, though. For you. Yeah, I don't think he was a good Peter Parker. I said the movie had flaws. That was one of them. It was a big flaw. But... In this movie, we're past that origin story. Andrew Garfield is comfortable in the role. I gotta say, I think he's better in both Peter Parker and Spider-Man mode than 
Toby Maguire. I had to reach for his name. That's how little I now think of <laughs> Toby Maguire. And I think you're right, Jacob. This is some of the best acting we've ever had, some of the best relationships. I mean, it's no secret that Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield are a couple off screen. They bring that kind of energy on screen. I completely believe their romance, even if I didn't know what I know about them off screen. Their scenes together are so great. Everything going on in here, as far as the acting goes and the characterizations, I'm really liking. And once we have this breakup scene and once George Stacy shows up, I'm now out of my fear zone. I'm now getting a little bit more comfortable. If you're going to bring back the specter of death, and I'm pretty sure you're killing that girlfriend, <laughs> this is not going to be the kiddie movie I thought it was when Giamatti was screaming at the heavens. Yeah, and just to chime in here, I like Garfield for the most part in the last one, although I felt like his performance was a little mannered. I think this movie allows him to be the Spider-Man that he wanted to be last time, but he had to be Nolanized. So I think he's fitting into this movie better than he did the last movie, and it's it's helping his performance. The only thing I don't like is his jokes with Aunt May. And I don't understand these audiences I see movies with who've never seen a trailer. I was cleaning the chimney. We don't have a chimney. What? I mean, that was it. I saw that trailer like 80 times on television. I never saw that version of the trailer. You didn't? Okay, it <laughs> no. was out there. My audience laughed. And I was washing the flag. No one washes the flag. Okay, laundry sheriff. The audience burst into laughter. I'm like, did you guys not? See another movie that had a trailer for Spider-Man before it? Yeah, I saw many of those jokes before, but you know what, Arnie? They still play. It's a testament to the chemistry. Most more to Garfield than Sally Field, but yeah. <laughs> you, you want to talk about maybe a performance I'm not in love with here. Two-time Oscar winner, Sally, we don't like you. We really don't like you. <laughs> I'll include myself in that we. <laughs> and I was afraid she was too young for Aunt May. No, not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. She is age appropriate. I actually feel bad for Aunt May. It's revealed that to help pay for Peter's college, she has to go and be a nurse at her age. She's like retirement age. She's been working as a waitress her whole life, and now she's going to get a nursing degree. I mean, admittedly, nursing's a great field to get into right now. Any listeners contemplating a career path can't hire enough nurses and make good money. But I felt bad that Aunt May was, like, doing that on the side. I feel worse that Sally Field gets no story in this movie, though. We get to see her running around a hospital later on. Like, this nursing student would be in charge, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, they, they cram a lot of stuff in there trying to create some kind of story for her. I, I think it could have all been cut. It never really plays out, except we see her give some orders all of a sudden at the very end in this hospital. Not sure she's been in nursing school long enough to actually be practicing yet. But yeah, I, I feel like they threw her a bunch of stuff because she's Aunt May, and that's a pivotal character in the Spider-Man mythos. But yeah, this this could have all been cut. But there was some light hardness here over, you know, joking around about the laundry. That did get a lot of laughs in the theater I saw it in. You need someone at the home life that still doesn't know his secret. But and she does. That, no, I... I, well, does she? Yes, we'll talk about it at the end. But I wondered that the whole way through. But at the end, she shows her hand. But when she's early on and she's pounding on the door and she comes in and he's under the covers going, I'm really naked. And he's under there in the spider outfit. And she looks up and sees the lamp is swinging on the ceiling. She knows. Yeah, I think you're right. She has a suspicion. She's playing it real close to the vest. I'm 
all for cutting her entirely out of this movie. This movie is too long, and she's a weight to it. I honestly think you could cut literally every scene that she's had. She has, they give her one, like, moment, like, this is, like, your big moment where you're my boy, and she's crying and all that. He may be your boy, but this is not your movie. Get out. Move on. Let's, <laughs> let's get to the real movie. There's a lot of other characters to include here, and you're just not essential. And to that point, we have another parent-child relationship. We finally see Norman Osborn, and he is not the shadowy figure in the hat. Mm. I think even the filmmakers thought the shadowy figure in the hat was Norman Osborn last time. Yeah, that's what I remember thinking from that first film. But no, now he's the sick guy in bed. My money is still on Campbell Scott making a return as the ultimate villain, that he'll be some spider dad or something. Maybe he'll be Spider-Ham. I don't know. But uh, yes, <laughs> the surprise is that we have a separate identity for Green Goblin, and it's in the family blood. Literally. I, I mean, I don't know yet how I feel about this. I kind of like that, you know, we're going to skip over the whole Norman Green Goblin thing, but he is kind of a Green Goblin. Whatever this disease is, he's got claws and he's turning green. I I thought that was kind of a neat way to take kind of that goofy idea from the comics where he literally is like this trick-or-treat Halloween Goblin and kind of just give that more of a real-world feel. It's not realistic, but I I thought that was kind of a neat way to go. Uh, you obviously haven't seen Troll 2. This can happen. No, I, <laughs> yes, obviously, it, and I hope I never have to. You, We might. <laughs> I got a Wicked Witch of the West vibe off of him with that green face paint and everything. And what a horrible father-son reunion. Why would you call upon your son just so the two of you could yell at each other? Not that Harry's doing so good either because he's pretty bitter. You're at your father's deathbed. You're going to bitch about your 16th birthday whiskey or brandy or whatever it was. Now, here's another actor I expected to hate, Dane DeHaan as the new Harry Osborn. I don't know if you guys have seen him. I saw that movie Chronicle. I'm over 18, and so I hated it. (laughs) It was all right. No, I liked the movie. We disagree on this, and I know it was found footage, and I still liked it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as much as I like maybe like the first 20 minutes as real zippy, real fast, entertaining when they get into this heavier stuff, this actor, he does a lot of brooding in Chronicle. And okay, it's a teenager with superpowers that feels like a loner. And now he's going to get his revenge. I guess that works. And I guess he's kind of playing that same character here. He's shoved off to boarding school. But maybe it's just that haircut they give him. He's so off-putting in this. And I never really buy into his acting. He just seems like someone that was told, hey, brood a lot and act like you're mad. And uh, he never sells it like some of the other characters sell who they're playing for me. See? I didn't like the brooding, but I loved it when he got mad. The more this movie went on, I liked it when he was having fun with Peter, and I liked it when he was planning his revenge on Oscorp. And during the second hour of the film, I found myself really liking this actor as this character. The hair, yeah, I was getting a little Edward Furlong T2 kind <laughs> yes. of vibe off yes. of the bangs. But other than that choice of hairstyle, I actually thought he did really well. Yeah, it, it's when he's interacting with adults that I, I feel like he wasn't selling. You know, later on he'll have a, be in a board meeting, and maybe he's trying to play the tough guy, you know, this young kid that's taken over this corporation. Maybe he really can't sell it, and, and that's part of the character. But yeah, when he does interact with Peter, I do buy this like lighter side of him, and that like he's feeling young again and reconnecting with his youth. Towards the later half of the film, he works, but when we first get him here in these opening scenes, no, not so much for me. I feel bad for Dane DeHaan. You know why 
he's got that curse. He does have a family curse, and it's when you look like a star that's bigger than you. It happened to Steve <laughs> Ulrich. He looked like Johnny Depp, and he never had a career. And now it's going to happen to him. Because he looks so much like DiCaprio, I have read a lot of hype about how he is the next DiCaprio. I don't think he is, but he's probably a pretty good actor that is going to be pigeonholed into being something that he's not. Thank you, DiCaprio. I'm like, who is he? He's DiCaprio. Who is he? Yeah, he's DiCaprio with some grease in his hair. Yeah, wait, wait, isn't that Edward Furlong? Like, when I was a kid, I couldn't tell the two apart. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. There is the Edward Furlong resemblance as well. And by the end of it, he's looking like Evil Ed. But I will say I like the performance pretty much. Some of it's aided by the special effects when they give him those green contacts and he's able to use those eyes to kind of leer at the assistant girl, Felicia, or whatever. I thought... That, yeah, he had a menace to him. There was sort of a privileged, unlikable oiliness to him. But when he reunites with Peter, I saw a nicer side for a moment. I saw a character with dimension. I don't know that the movie has enough focus to fully feature him here. But I thought the screen time that he does have, he's pretty good. And I actually liked the boardroom scene, Jacob. I agree. Most of the boardroom scene I'm not liking. But there's the one moment where... This is where I first start to like the character is when he's talking to Mencken. That's the bald guy whose name is barely ever seen. And it was my third watching that I caught his <laughs> name was Mencken. So he's talking to Mencken. And he goes, it's Mr. Osborne. We're not friends. The way he delivers it, the way he smiles, the way he kind of squints. I'm just liking that he's taking control. That's the moment when he turns the boardroom on his. And then he demotes everybody in the room and promotes a person who I'd like to see promoted in the next film, Felicia. Yeah, is this, is this the black cat, Felicia yes. Hardy? It is the black cat. And you know what? I don't even know who the black cat is, <laughs> but I knew that there was a rumor about sticking black cat in this movie. And I'm like, oh, this must be where it was. And I knew that it wasn't at least featured in the advertisement. So I expected her to put on something like with talons by the end of this. But I did expect to see a fully formed supervillain. Yeah, Felicia Hardy in the comics. I like that they never said her last name. She's just Felicia. So if they decide to go a different way with it, it could be a second Felicia if they recast. <laughs> because I've not seen Felicity Jones in anything. But yes, I was very excited at the prospect. Forget Mary Jane. Been there, done that. Give me some Black Cat. Maybe I just want Spider-Man to see some pussy. <laughs> uh, indeed. Although, speaking about cats, I just want to point out that Mencken, Colm Fior, we've seen him before in Catwoman. He was the one that slapped <laughs> Sharon Stone and broke his hand because her face was concrete from all that cold cream. That guy, I was like, I know him from somewhere. I couldn't place him. I had to look him up. Jacob, we reviewed him in Riddick, and he was also King Laffy in Thor. What's King Laffy? Uh, yeah, I don't even know what that is. But <laughs> The Frost Giant? Oh. So what, it was his voice, is what you're saying. No, it was his face underneath a bunch of blue goo. Who would know? <laughs> well, you know, we spent so much time talking about the performances that we do like here. Should we talk about the worst thing in the movie? Well, I, I assume you're talking about Jamie Foxx. Who else? Here. Oh, come on now. He wasn't that bad. Oh, really? <laughs> no, this is how bad he was. I, I talked about how they, we all said this got a pretty much all ages vibe. This is the five-year-old vibe. This is the Riddler from Batman Forever. Yeah, I would definitely hire him for a children's party. But for this movie, uh, stick with Annie, okay? He's going to be Daddy <laughs> Warbucks and Annie. That's the yes. performance he's giving here. I can't believe how much, like, oh, I'm playing a nerd? Well, let me put grease in my hair and go talk like this and put glasses on. I mean, really? I liked Jamie and, and Django. And, you know, the man has an Oscar. 
So why is he playing this broadly? Was Did he have a completely different director than everyone else? Well, he did do this movie. He got the call, and his four-year-old daughter is a huge Spider-Man oh, fan. He that's did, the one I blame, then. He did it for his daughter, oh. and... Yes, his character arc is straight, straight, straight out of Batman Forever. Schumacher. I mean, this is I, a better I, version of the Schumacher Batman universe. <laughs> you know, when I realized that, when I saw because he shows up during that plutonium chase where Spider-Man saves mm-hmm. him. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. that's that's where he's taking this character. Uh, ooh, like, I got scared at that moment where this film was going to go. Yeah, I was, I'm all for lightening the mood, but this is poisoning the well. I don't know how light it went, though, because during that first scene, he's bumbling around. I wasn't able to get too much of a presence off of him other than I thought it was really gross that Spider-Man said, lick my glove. I don't think it's good to lick a glove and then start matting down that hair. It did the hair no good anyway. But the second scene we see him, this dude is nuts. He is certifiably insane. Now, you may say Edward Nigma was as well. But my question, and after three viewings, I still don't know. Max has built up this friendship with him and Spider-Man during this montage of Spider-Man's good acts, including a very funny scene where Spider-Man has a cold. You hear Max on the radio saying, Spider-Man saved me and he and I became friends. He's obviously built up a fantasy world, and he's obviously not able to tell the difference between fantasy and reality. My question is, does he really think Spider-Man baked him a cake? Or does he open the refrigerator and he's so... So schizo, it's like Fight Club, like the Spider-Man persona took over, baked a cake, put it in the fridge (laughs) so that Jack could then go, you made me a cake. You know, I, I thought that was him. No, I didn't, I don't think he was having delusions of Spider-Man hanging out with him on his birthday. I, I, I took it that, oh, he's just like obsessed that Spider-Man said, you're my eyes and ears. I mean, isn't that what happened that, like with Edward Nigma and Batman yes. Forever? I, I don't want to go back to no. that film, but this felt like such a retread of that story to the point where like Edward Nigma, he like, riddles and this max guy like we see him in his apartment and what he's hot wired the fuse box for his lights like because he likes electricity because he's going to become electro later like this is the five-year-old stuff of the film and I feel like part of the problem is the writing, too. I mean, I feel like Jamie Foxx couldn't figure out whether he was supposed to be playing a supervillain or a misunderstood victim. And it comes across differently at different points in this movie. I cannot track his arc. I cannot understand at any point whether I'm supposed to be afraid of him or pity him. I couldn't tell that either. We then see him at Oscorp and... I don't understand the thing with the birthday. It's his birthday, and of course it is both metaphorically in that he's going to transform, but it's also his actual day of his birth. And he's got this card, again, going with the delusions. I'm guessing he made the card for himself. Gwen's there, and he's like, whoa, something flyer my friends made up for me, and it's going to have a lot of celebrities. I'd invite you, but the guest list is closed. He's obviously desperate for attention, and what I like about this character is that's a through line. He constantly wants to be seen, and as Max... He's invisible, and they even steal his designs for a revolutionary power plant. He's so invisible, such a weakling nobody, he calls himself, and it's true, that they can steal his designs, create a power plant that's going to power all of New York, and he's going to get nothing out of it. And so I do feel sorry for him, but it starts in the very early scenes. I am going to give this movie astounding credit for helping Jamie Foxx through the use of score. 
Now, the score was Hans Zimmer, but they brought in Pharrell Williams. And it never would have occurred to me if you have an electric character to use electronica for the score. It's, of course, obvious. I'm just not the one who goes there. But they use this chanting that allows us in the score to hear the subconscious mind paranoia of Max. And I love that. You love that. It confused me because when he comes out as Electro, reveals himself in Times Square, like there's this like, they're all laughing at you. They're all, you know, they said they were your friend. Like it's so turned down though at the beginning in the score. I like kept looking around. I'm like, why are people talking? (laughs) During the movie, why is someone's like cell phone? They're they're watching a YouTube video. Like I didn't realize it was from the film, and then it comes up later. I'm like, that's just too on the nose. I don't like. That. Is that his mind? Are we supposed to be hearing his thoughts? Is that like I didn't know if that was like a new metal corn uh, song playing? Yes. Now you finally hit it. Yes, that was my first <laughs> thought. Was this reminded me of that awful late '90s trend where they tried to have rapping and rocking together? You like this? Uh, this is a dick. The music. Musical choices overall were pretty horrible. I guess it's easy to put it on Pharrell since he's the new guy. But yeah, this is one of many times that I just cringed over the soundtrack. See, I liked it because it helped that character. It helped me realize we were getting in his head. And on repeat viewings, these chants are there. They're just softer in the earlier scene. No, I, I know. I thought I heard it. I, but I thought it was people talking <laughs> in the Let theater. The bodies hit the floor. <laughs> That's the song that was coming. I hate all that music. I just hate it so much. I never liked it. I don't want to call back to it. It's too soon, too soon for a new metal reunion. And I may or may not own all of that band's albums. (laughs) I I do like that they did this like electronic metal version of Itsy Bitsy Spider. It's it's somewhat subtle, but I did I did like that. When you say like, do you mean extremely dislike? (laughs) Because I agree. No, I I actually kind of like that, how it was so distorted, and I thought it was kind of funny. The music in this is wall-to-wall awful. Can I agree with both of you? Because I was with Stuart that I hated, oh my god, it's Itsy Bitsy Spider, until I realized that wasn't the score. Electro's actually making those sounds. And then I liked it again, because it was in the movie. But if that had been the score choice, and Hans Zimmer sat around listening to Itsy Bitsy Spider for inspiration, not so much. But I did like this music. I liked the pop songs in it. We're going to talk a little bit more about one of them, but the end credit song, all of it... Yeah, I I like the music in this one, but nothing stood out to me as good as the way, again, back to Electro, this helped me understand his character. Because you listen to it, and it's like, they laughed at me, he shot at me, they're using me, he's dead to me, electricity. I mean, it just keeps going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. You see that? See, it was too on the nose for me. Like I, I was able to get that. As poor as this electro stuff is, I think they started with a good foundation. Like the best villains are those that are motivated from good intentions. And here's a guy who, you know, he doesn't start off bad. He he just wants friends. And I do love that this Spider Man, he comes in to confront Electro. It doesn't start off as a fight. Like Spider Man again. I love Andrew Garfield as Spider Man. You know, he sits down on the car and he's just kind of talking to him. He's like, hey, you know, let me help. I, I like that his first instinct isn't to start slinging webs and fighting them. It's to try to talk it out. But he's also this Spider-Man is so enjoyable. He's so lighthearted. I, I don't mind watching him sitting around on a cop car talking instead of fighting. But here's the thing. I agree with you. It's nice that they're trying to make him a complicated character and that, yes, they don't just instantly see each other and go, you're the good guy. I'm the bad guy. Let's fight. 
But what is the tipping point? Why does Electro lose it? Is he someone that just has so much rage and power he can't control it? Is he a crazy guy or is there a method to why he sees Spider-Man eclipsing him? Now, it literally happens on the Times Square LED screens. He is a star for a minute and everyone is looking at him and that's what he's always wanted. And then Spider-Man swings in and that all goes away. I don't know why they can't do a two shot, but... He sees himself <laughs> as being lesser than Spider-Man, so that's why he's going to fight Spider-Man the rest of the movie. All right, here's how I took this. And he goes to Times Square. I get the feeling that he's kind of on autopilot. He doesn't know what's happened to him. He doesn't know what he wants. What happened to him, by the way, is he was plugging two giant tubes of conduit together and then fell into an eel tank. This is not what happened in the comics. In the comics... He, he was a, he's a power man. He, he worked for, like, what? The electric company? Yes, not the TV show, but actually the power yeah. company. <laughs> and he was struck by lightning and just happened to be grabbing the grounding cable the right way. Here, he falls into the eel tank. I think that fits this universe where everything Oscorp's doing involves animals yeah I, I like it feels almost like the ultimate universe if you read those comics where there's one central source for superpowers almost and I, I do like that everything kind of stems from Oscorp in this spider-man universe yeah and his look here is the ultimate Marvel electro I know it looks like dr Manhattan minus the wang but <laughs> yeah they, they make sure to put shorts on him even when it doesn't make sense but when he gets to Times Square I think he doesn't know why he wants to touch power cables and absorb power. It's like hunger for an animal. You just eat because it's instinctive. This has modified him to that point, but he has no control over it. And so he's just wanting to talk it out. But he's also upset because Spider-Man doesn't remember him. He's like, you lied to me. You said I was your eyes and ears. You don't remember who I am. But he did remember him. He didn't remember his name. And I mean, come on. How petty is that? But he remembered that he was the guy with the blueprints. He does remember him. That moment is confusing. I couldn't track why all of a sudden things are sparking. I think Max slash Electrohead put Spider-Man on such a pedestal, glamorized him so much in his own mind that they were like these besties, you know, and, and I think the real tipping point was the sniper shot that Spider-Man's like, hey, look, at first the cops open fire and they can't hit him. The electricity melts the bullets and Spider-Man gets him to stop. And he's like, look, no one's going to shoot at you. Just trust me. And, and so it was like a second betrayal. Again, this is five-year-old comic book kid stuff. It, it's not a great reason, but I think it's there. Yeah, I think it's there. And we see earlier he's full of rage when he's talking to Alistair Smythe, his boss at Oscorp, and his boss sarcastically says, yeah, and I'm Spider-Man. And I didn't realize it was a dream sequence. They fooled me. I actually thought Max went up and grabbed his boss by the throat, but it was a fantasy imagining. I believed it because of the way Fox was playing this character. I'm like, oh, man, no, this is bad. I'm like, okay, it was a dream sequence. So we know he has this rage in him, but he never felt he had the power to do anything about it. So after, what birthday would you guess this is? How old is Jamie Fox? <laughs> he's in his 40s, but probably his vanity would say he's a 30-year-old. <laughs> So after 40 years of being invisible, I went with this character again. He's nuts. He's insane. And I 
think that he's used properly here. This Times Square fight is amazing. Yes, I was thinking about bullet time when you mentioned it, Jacob. I, but it's bullet time to the next generation. It's now like 3D rotational bullet time with slight movement. The way Spider-Man's saving everyone, they went through a huge thing. They recreated Times Square. That was not shot in Times Square, but they recreated it. I've been to Times Square so many times. I got remarried on those stairs where the big action sequence was on Valentine's Day this year. Uh, same wife for anyone who's wondering. <laughs> Renewed your vows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I uh, stayed at the Marriott Grand Marquis, and I'm like seeing all those. They recreated that outside of Times Square so that they could then blow it up, and it looks fantastic. They had an Iron Man 2 thing. Their best action sequence came mid-movie. Yeah, that that might be true. I mean, I, I love that chase at the beginning, but I do, yeah, when they slow it down and freeze it, it's not just because, oh, let's do cool bullet time. It, it, I really felt like, okay, this is Spidey Sense vision i guess you know he, he gets those spidey senses where he could kind of think real fast and see what's going to happen you see these people about to grab this metal rail where the electricity's flowing to it and this car that's flying towards uh, bystanders i don't know why bystanders are standing around and bullets have been flying from cops and electricity has been shooting out tourists are dumb i don't know new yorkers run away when that stuff's happening it's not good the New Yorkers did run away. They're smart. <laughs> it's the tourists. That's who's in Times Square anyway. The one thing I did like about this, I thought the scene was okay. I kind of liked watching him amass more and more power. I think that was what was impressive. When he's finally taken to the air, when he's finally flying, I'm like, Jamie Foxx could be a credible, scary villain if the performance doesn't get in the way. The special effects are aiding him at this point. What I really liked about the scene, though, is that it finally brings back the whole idea of the inorganic web shooters. This is what we learn here is that Electro's shocking power can melt them so that Spider-Man is not going to be able to be Spider-Man in future fights unless he gets the hose with the firefighters every time. <laughs> that was a nice way to take Electro down, too. It's right out of Electro's first appearance. I went back and reread that comic for this podcast. And yeah, that's how they take him out as they short circuit him. And all right. If I wasn't thinking Batman Forever earlier, but I was, I was certainly thinking it <laughs> when they take him to Arkham Asylum. Yeah, with this Dr. Kafka. Why are they playing it this way? Why is this now all of a sudden a five-year-old cartoon? Dr. Kafka is from the comic books. I, I know that, but the way they play him. But it is a woman, and it's not a yeah. German Nazi experimenter. She's actually a friend of Spider-Man's who helps out. Why they choose to go this... I was thinking Dr. Strangelove with that accent and yeah. all of that. It was really freaking childish, but... Yeah, that's David Child. Yeah, no, yeah, there's no but about it. Yeah, these scenes are bad. Electro's introduction, not so great. I didn't like the orientation with the eels, but when he's showing us his power, I'm like, okay. And then, yeah, he spends most of the rest of the movie locked up under the care of this guy. They're not utilizing this character well at all. You say they don't make good use of Electro, Stuart. This is the last time we're going to see superheroes for, what, 45 minutes? Because we're now going to have a whole lot of scenes of character exploration. The pacing is kind of bad. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that middle hour of researching the father, man, it drags. When Electro's underwater, so is the film. And we've often said that these movies are more about Peter Parker than Spider-Man and the villains. Here's where it really gets driven home, where we're going to spend a whole lot of time discussing Richard Parker. And I mean, I knew we had to discuss him some. I never expected that to be such a thrust of the 
second act of this film. Why would you expect it when they don't set it up at all? All of a sudden, we're in a montage <laughs> about let's find out what Roosevelt is. All of a sudden, for no reason whatsoever. Nothing is motivating this. There's, I thought the driving force in this movie was about Gwen and Peter and that they're having this on again, off again affair. You know, they, right before the electro scene, they had reunited and then she sees that he kind of leaves her there in the midst of the chaos after Spider-Man is finished. The next scene is a Mumford and Son montage. (laughs) Terrible. Terrible. Yeah, it it comes out of nowhere. You know, Peter, he keeps looking at this briefcase of his father's. And every once in a while, when he, I I do love that montage at the beginning where it's just him opening that closet and you, you know, he pulls a fish out of his pants or, you know, from the different crime sprees he's been stopping. And you always see this briefcase. And yeah, at just some point, he, uh, Ari, you saw this three times. Maybe you can fill in the gaps, but it just seems like he pulls it out and decides to cover his wall in crazy man, you know, with pieces of string trying to connect all the dots, trying to figure out the mystery about his dad. It, it does come out of nowhere for me. It is out of nowhere. Okay. The only thing I can take it as is it comes right after Gwen told him, I'm moving to London. And so he realizes he's losing everything. He's been staring at that briefcase. He can't figure out a way to make his web shooters work right. He's been trying to make that happen, and he just tries to tackle something else. And yeah, he creates this crazy wall thing. It's a lot like what Max had for Spider-Man. He creates it on the wall. Now, watching it the third time, I'm looking and I'm like, the things he's put on that wall are of absolutely no use. There's a bunch of pictures of Gwen. Yeah. There's a shot of a plane crashing. I'm like, is that the actual <laughs> plane? Was someone in a helicopter and took a picture? Or did he just find a picture of like a plane crashing from a movie to put there to remind him what that part of the wall was about? I have to wonder if this is Mark Webb's wall and he was just trying to storyboard <laughs> the movie. I really want to ding him here. I think that he's done a terrible job of telling this story. I think the assemblage of what's evolving and changing, the tracking of the characters. The performances are good, the characters are likable, but the way that it's all kind of garbled into these musical montages, bad direction. And I really have to complain about the song they used, because when he does this, it's this song by Philip Phillips called Gone, Gone, Gone. Unfortunately for Philip Phillips and Mark Webb and Andrew Garfield and Spider-Man, it has been appropriated to an American family insurance ad where they'll do it. I'll do it for you, for you, American family insurance. And so that's all I'm hearing as he's going through this montage the first time is I'm thinking, do I need to up my life insurance premium? I don't think that's a mistake, Arnie. I, later I saw State Farm advertised underneath a burning building Spider-Man was rescuing. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of product placement here. Vio, I mean, it's a Sony product. The deals are made. I understand that's how these kinds of movies are funded. It, it, we're watching ads during all of this. The commercial breaks are happening simultaneously <laughs> with the story. So many Sony products being shoved into this film. Did Sony make that calculator that Peter Parker later throws and finds coins in? Yeah, I I was wondering if Sony made computer monitors back in the 90s, as we'll find out in the subway scene. Yes, I had a very hefty, weighed about 76-pound, 21-inch Sony. It was gorgeous. Gorgeous. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that investigation does lead to the Sally Field scene where the secrets, the cost they had is she thinks Peter doesn't love her and just keeps dreaming of better parents. But here's the thing, like, ask someone that was adopted, like, they might love you. Do you, you adopted them, you raised them, they love you, but I think there's always that poll. You want to know what happened to my real parents? Why didn't they accept me? Why did they toss me to the side? Like, it seems weird that Sally Field or, or Aunt May here is so, like, feels so rejected by Peter wanting to know about his parents, who he knew until he was, like, four or five, like, and then they just disappeared. Like, that seems like a natural thing. You wouldn't go and lecture someone for that. No, they just want to give their Oscar winner something to do here. Again, <laughs> uh, there's no need to repeat it. Sally Field is worthless in this movie. Does she give any information as to why he figures out it's Roosevelt? It's something about the tokens. The D-Train. Yeah. She, her- he didn't seem like someone who'd be involved Involved in international conspiracy, he was the same guy who wore a dirty lab coat and took the D train to work every day. And apparently, from the D train, he went into the train car that emerged from the tracks and had all the computer equipment. Wasn't Connors the the lizard? Didn't he have a subway station lab in that first film? Listen, I'm just gonna get there. Sandy would have destroyed this shit. Sandy flooded the subways <laughs> in Midtown, okay? There's nowhere this Roosevelt station is that Sandy wouldn't have water flooded. And he finds out about it partly through the internet. Like, it, it wasn't even, like, really motivated by anything other than, like, a like a Google search. Hey, at least it's Google, not Bing. <laughs> But all of this feels very, very clumsy. It's where I really, I'm not following plots of this movie. That FDR had a secret passage so that no one would observe him moving and afflicted with polio. Why is that here? Why did they have to have him find it this way? Why couldn't they have him find it at the Oscorp building as he's becoming friends with Perry? When I saw this Roosevelt thing at the very beginning, I, I'm thinking Citizen Kane, you know, Rosebud and like the mystery of what Rosebud is. That warrants like a two and a half hour film like that. That has a lot of meaning as you watch Citizen Kane here. Roosevelt like, oh, it's here's a uh, three minute video I made on a, and transferred it to a subway station. And and what's the big secret that that? Hey, I'm innocent, guys. No, no. The secret is something I predicted last podcast. The secret is It's linked to Parker DNA. Nobody else could have been bitten. Now, it wasn't as nefarious as I thought. Maybe because we did Spider-Man right after the Avengers, and so we would just seen Ang Lee's Hulk. But I wondered if Richard Parker was experimenting on little Peter or experimenting on himself and passing it to Peter. But nobody else could be bitten by that spider and get the spider powers because those spiders were injected with Richard Parker's DNA. That is the true takeaway from all of this. And, oh, by the way, that whole conspiracy thing we threw out there that nobody really believed, it's not true. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. You know, much like this whole search for Roosevelt where it just comes out of nowhere, it's like, oh, let me drop this line that this is why the spider bite's going to work for Peter but not for Harry later on. Why would you throw that? Here, Here's my confession. And by the way, in case of uh, Osborne Corporation finds this, now they know my secret of what to do with these spiders to get them to actually work. The secrets are banal, so thank God they didn't drag it out for a third film. I didn't think that they were revelatory, but I was glad that I got it all in this one lump data dump and we can finally get back at the movie at hand. I mean, the secret trails back to this friendship that he had with Harry, which was not established in the last movie. I think that might have been a mistake. 
Well, the last movie had enough going on as well. I like that there was the connection between Peter and Harry, that they were both characters who felt cast off by their parents. It's not that either one's parents died. I mean, Peter's did, but he was left alone before they died. They were both left by their fathers. I think that strengthens some parallels here. I think having Harry in the last movie might have gotten a bit too confusing, yeah, and I do like that that explains why they kind of kick it off so quickly and they're friends in this film, because they were childhood friends, and then Harry was shipped away at the age of 11. So I, I did like that, because it would have seemed weird, like, hey, we were best friends, remember? And now we're going to be best friends again. Yeah, I would have liked more scenes with these two actors. They're good, and their friendship is going to be pivotal towards the end here. This middle should have been about them, and less with Peter off on his own in the train car. They should have discovered this together. They should have teamed up together rather than make it a solo adventure that's true because they find the same thing they both go to the same place and harry finds it literally by dropping a box on a table i mean it's not through any work of his own he's trying to pop a goblin zit on his neck and it hurts and so this box his father handed him i don't know why his dad couldn't use a usb drive he uses this box that apparently harry didn't know interacted with the smart table (laughs) yeah that was so weird that like he's he's like oh why'd my dad give me this little cube (laughs) the sony surface coming 2016 maybe that's all it is but it it, was i didn't i just thought it was you know like a usb port or something like that i didn't realize he hadn't been able to access the information yeah because his dad's like here is all my knowledge on this little thing and like he was just been fiddling around with it in his finger yeah i mean you have a you have every scientist under your thumb you didn't get one of them to open it up for you i mean okay (laughs) i thought it was a thumb drive too so when it starts interacting with this table in special ways. You're right, Stuart. That would have helped because I like the scene the two have together. They did cut some of the scenes from the trailer. The, what have you been doing? Oh, a little web design. I noticed that line in the trailer. There was a couple others. Then there was the scene where Harry and Peter are sitting at a desk and Harry says that Oscorp had Peter under investigation. We never see that one. I wonder if that was the scene that maybe caused Peter to start investigating the briefcase, and it was cut, so now we think it's Gwen. Then there was another scene where Harry asked, but what about Peter? And we hear Norman go, not everyone has a happy ending. There's a lot cut out of this movie. But I would have liked more of that together. Instead, we just get this thing that Harry has then looked up who Gwen is, because Peter said that he was kind of on again, off again with Gwen. And we get this sort of ominous scene in an elevator between Gwen and Harry. I don't understand what's going on with Gwen in that scene. She was at Times Square for Electro. Yes. And so she goes to work where she's the only person other than Smythe who knows who Max Dillon was. Right. Because they shared an elevator once and she's a good hearted person that pays attention to every single person she ever meets casually at Oscorp. She can go around (laughs) and name them all. And even that nerdy Max guy, she knew him by name and could do a whole search. Hey, listen, if somebody lied to me in an elevator ride about a celebrity filled birthday party. Party, I'd remember that name and go, did you see that crazy guy, Max? He's full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> he would have been the crazy weird guy. And she is Oxford material, so. <laughs> but because she's looking him up, all these nefarious Oscorp security people start to descend on her to what? Kill her? Fire her? Yeah, this is bad plotting. Yeah, is she still an intern at this point because she's still super smart and doing all the science stuff? Later on, I mean, she will solve all the problems for Spider-Man because... 
Again, I don't know. She's Oxford material. I, no, she knows the whole grid. She knows how the city is powered. That's amazing. No wonder she was valedictorian of her high school. <laughs> she was giving tours the last time, and now she is literally like sitting at a desk. Like, are you going to turn in your notice for when you go to England here? Because you apparently <laughs> run the play. I think she was already fired. But as far as knowing how the whole grid works, it's flipping a switch. I could do it, okay? <laughs> it's not like she's in there really rewiring the thing she knows which switch gets to be flipped (laughs) i admire the fact that they want to give the girl something to do that this is not just her waiting around for the superhero to save her but this is again not credible as a high school senior thinking about their next step in life if she's already working in oscorp in this way she doesn't need to go to oxford her life's already set It, it just doesn't make any sense I think that the whole I'm going to Oxford is her way of testing Peter anyway. She doesn't want to go. She basically is hoping that he'll say, I love you. Is this something he's not capable of saying? He says it in the opening scene outside the dim sum restaurant. Yeah, I don't I don't get this conflict that suddenly emerges in the relationship that she needs for him to articulate that he, he wants her around. I thought that was obvious. I think she really does need the distance. I think that the two of them are in love. They tried to be friends and immediately, you know, pretty much start making out again. Their chemistry is such, but if he is going to keep ripping her heart out, and like Jacob said, we have to believe this happened a few times, perhaps the best thing to do is get the hell out of New York, and if you can further your career at the same time, so be it. I took her at her word in that we're on different paths right now. And it's because he is choosing to stay away from her, which, spoiler alert, they're all right. George Stacy, Peter Parker, this whole we need to stay apart. She might have been a little bit happier had she taken the earlier flight <laughs> to England, or at least a little bit more breathing. And yet, at the same time, when she's in the taxi cab to go to the airport to fly to Oxford, because she's decided to do that instantaneously, as soon as she gets it. Can you imagine? You get in the mail, you're going to this college, all right, and you, like, run out the door, like, literally. (laughs) That airline ticket's super expensive, but that's short of notice. (laughs) Hey, a cop's life insurance can pay for a lot. (laughs) She knows that she's testing him. She's hoping that he'll call. She's hoping that she gets a, a text. Well, she gets the best text ever. I think, by him webbing the entire Brooklyn Bridge with I love you. That's a cute moment. I'm way too much of a 21st century digital boy because she gets out of the car and she's staring at this I love you. And I'm like, isn't that the moment you take out a camera and do a selfie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She doesn't have time. She swooped off her feet. They're on top of the bridge. I, You know, they've had trouble, I think, as good as these two are, as finding something as iconic as that first Spider-Man movie where the upside down inverted kiss. They come close here. The idea that he's turned the bridge into a, a webbed skywriting kind of message and that they're atop that as the sun's going down i get the sense that with the darkness coming we're about to get into that action climax but we're going to take this one last moment as the light is dimming to give them a moment here i I think that's nice i think that's right i like that she's in this movie but i wish that they could do a better job of inserting her into the rest of the climax here because she's important but what she does for the rest of the story is kind of stupid And I remember this from the first film. She just knew too much. It wasn't credible. But, yeah, I like this moment on the bridge. And 
this is where it kind of brought me back, like, oh, yeah, she's probably going to die now. Because in the comics, the death of Gwen Stacy, she's thrown off. Isn't she thrown off the bridge, Arnie? That, that's what I remember. Yeah, you guys said that. I thought that was actually going to happen here. I literally thought the goblin was going to fly up and be like, hey, chicky. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking. So it was like this bittersweet moment. And again, these actors, they sell these films to me. Well, they didn't sell that last one to me. It wasn't quite good enough. But yeah, I love these more dramatic moments with Garfield and Stone. And I, I do like this moment on the bridge where he's spun the I love you and they're kind of just standing up there watching the sunset over the city. Yeah, I thought that was a great scene. And obviously that is going to be this series upside down kiss. It's their last moment of tenderness. It was already spoofed on SNL. Two days after the movie came out, SNL was on there. Oh, okay. So it was a good scene. I do wish that. Gwen had a little bit more to do, but I like that she's self-determining. I also like that Peter's going to England for her. She's not going to stay in New York to be with him. She's not sitting by the phone to wait for Peter to say, don't go, I love you. Okay. No, he was going to go be the international Spider-Man, which actually, I would love that as a twist. I know Spider-Man's so iconic in New York, but wouldn't Spider-Man with the bobbies in London be kind of fun? <laughs> so you could have the Union Jack pattern on the suit. <laughs> so I like that scene quite a bit. And it does then, you see the city go dark because... Harry and Max have teamed up. Because they both hate Spider-Man. Again, why? No, no. Harry doesn't hate Spider-Man. Max Spider-Man won't give him his blood. So that's enough to, like, start a whole hate campaign. Well, he is dying, and, like, that's the way he can live. And when we say give him the blood, is that, like, a vial? Is that, like, one injection or, or monthly donations? Or, like, does he really expect anyone to, like, drain their body for him to not be a goblin? He is not his father. He is not a scientific genius. Norman Osborn was down there in the labs, in the white coat. I don't know what base he was putting over the green skin to look human, but he was down there doing the research. His son, he was sent away to boarding school and dating French mom. He was not Gwen Stacy, the valedictorian in the science lab. <laughs> I think he'll take a vial, and if that injection doesn't work, then he wants more. It's a slippery slope. I'm with Spider-Man for saying, I'm not going to tap a vein for you. And I, I thought Spider-Man's biggest concern was, like, they just, like, traced the DNA and find out who Spider-Man was. I'm like, yeah, that's why you shouldn't give it. They'll figure out you're Peter Parker. I wouldn't put it past Oscorp to have all of Parker DNA, the entire family history, on file. If Richard worked there, maybe at a company dinner party, somebody brushed <laughs> the baby's hair and kept the hair on file. But that wasn't what I was thinking what it was. I was actually thinking back to an old Amazing Spider-Man comic where Peter has to give Aunt May a blood transfusion. Oh, and then yeah. he's worried that the radiation poisoning could kill her because he has radioactive blood. That's where my mind went. Not Spider-Harry or that it would just be needing more blood. That said, I'm still not convinced that if a spider bite gave spider powers, that blood from someone bitten by a spider is a cure-all. Yeah. I, I don't believe that the research is very conclusive on spider-to-goblin <laughs> uh, transmutations. <laughs> I just don't think we know enough yet. And I don't understand this conflict. I don't really understand any of this setup. So, okay, so Spider-Man won't help me. I'm going to go free Electro, and we're going to break into the company that I was just 
a coup happened and it was kicked out of what's going on in this movie i was able to follow this i only saw it once but yeah they said after the whole lizard thing that they destroyed all this human animal hybrid stuff but they had secretly stored some of the venom from these spiders and so he's like if i can't get it from spider-man i'll break into my old company and i thought campbell scott killed all those spiders anyway no he said in his video he couldn't kill them all he killed the ones on his desk but he couldn't get into that big twirling room where peter was bit okay and the venom that's felicia's one damn thing she does in this movie that's true (laughs) tell harry about the venom yes black cat did get that one so harry goes and all of a sudden he's like iron man and iron man 3 he's like busting out tasers to break into ravencroft and free electro i want to try to give this film credit that they could have gone the easy room said "Ah, we're villains let's go get spider-man i mean electro is motivated because like here's a guy reaching out to me he's like i need you and like that's something that max desperately wanted to have in his life i do want to recognize it It as kitty as electro has been in that i i like that they created villains that have human motivations they're they're not just mustache twirling bad guys keep trying guys i don't feel like they got there jacob yeah they tried i felt like i saw the screenwriters straining like the (laughs) spiders webs themselves i saw them stretch and bend and try to make these connections i don't think the connections are very solid i don't understand why these two pair up i like it I actually do. Now, I understand, just to go to what Jacob said, I was back in Batman and Robin because I thought before I went into this movie that Electro looked a little like Mr. Freeze in his outfit and the blue head and the thing on the forehead. He he does drop a couple quips like when that Times Square thing, he's like, time to like blow out my candles or something yes. like that. I don't know if it's actually still his birthday. Maybe he doesn't realize time <laughs> passed. The whole how much time passes in this movie is very confusing because they graduate from high school and Months pass of Peter stalking Gwen, and I don't know. It's, but she hasn't gone to college. Yeah. I know. It, I agree. The timeline's all left up. <laughs> so I don't know if it was still his birthday, but I was thinking about how – and I never want to think about Batman and Robin. But I was thinking about how in Batman and Robin, Mr. Freeze got caught and put in Arkham, and then Poison Ivy broke him out to be her muscle. We have that same dynamic here, but done well. Because I actually do like that Max – First of all, Dane DeHaas again. I know you didn't like him, Jacob, but his acting in this scene when Electra's like, I should kill you. Think bigger, Max. I, it's a, a, just an unexpected delivery of a good line. And the way he's saying, I need you, and that's what motivates Max. I like it. I like it a lot. And it shows how you can do this. I kept wondering if Electra would get baned in this movie. He doesn't. No, we haven't got to the rhino yet. No, no, we haven't. And we freaking will. I got things to say about that rhino. But no, I like how they team up. I go with it. I like how Harry uses his wiles to get him out. And they kill. You know, I've been worrying about this kidified movie. And it's bloodless deaths. But they do kill the security guards at Ravencroft. They kill Kafka. Yeah, they shoot bolts through them. They got they got a hole that you could see through. I thought that was kind of alarming after the earlier portrayal of Max, that now all of a sudden he's shooting holes through people. And I like what Jamie Foxx is doing as Electro. They really up the bass in his voice. He's coming at those subwoofers. He's not overplaying it. I agree with you guys. As Max, it was a little bit here or there. But now as Electro, I like just he's pretty much silent, deadly electricity. His facial expressions and the way that they've computer animated him to change into even more purplish electricity. 
I'm liking him as a villain in this. Yeah, he's like a light bulb or, or one of those things that they have in science class where you put your hand on the globe. The Spencer Gifts things? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never knew what those were called, but that's sort of the concept here. I'll, I'll give you that. I hated his Max. Hated his Max. His Electro has its moments. I can't go so far as to say I think it's good, but I think it is unmotivated. I really, again, he wants to be a god now. He wants to be seen. Uh, he wants to kill Spider-Man. I've heard a lot of verbiage about what he might want, but I didn't feel it. It didn't track. It's because he's been stuck in a swimming pool for so much of this film that, yeah, everything is told to us about his motivation. I get his motivation. I I don't think it's unmotivated like you're saying, Stuart, but yeah, it's all told to us, which isn't the best kind of storytelling. It's a comic book motivation is what it is, though. It's, you wronged me, and now I want my revenge, and it's, you know, I'm going to put people in darkness like I was in darkness. It doesn't have the humanity I've come to expect in this, our fifth theatrical Spider-Man movie. It is the first villain who is the least connected to Peter Parker. Every other villain in every Spider-Man film has had a connection to Peter Parker. Electro doesn't. He is just more your comic book baddie. But I understand he's crazy, and I don't question it any more than that. He is a B-rate villain with a B-rate story in this. What's shocking, is, and no pun intended on shocking, is that they built him up as the A-list villain in all the trailers. At least he doesn't have his uh, green and yellow suit with the big electric bolt on his head. Since we're talking about screen time and villains, do you think they could have just made this about Harry? Do you think we could have gotten to the goblin faster? Or maybe he breaks Rhino out of jail and we get a Rhino instead of an Electro? Electro is someone I I like Sally Field. I think that they could have just cut from this entire movie. I really don't think that he was served by this storyline and they don't need him for the characters that matter. Yeah, I think as we get into the ending of this film, there was too much at the beginning here. I think there should have been more Goblin at the beginning. I think they should have got to the death of Gwen Stacy sooner. And it should have been more about that grieving and Parker reconciling, breaking that promise to her dad and losing his girlfriend and then having to decide to put the suit back on. I think that's the more powerful story, but they've jammed all this electro stuff in here. We've got some great action scenes, but in the end, it's not very weighty. The villain had to have a fast transformation so you can get your action scene at the one hour mark, your midpoint action, your racetrack scene, what have you. And I think Harry's story is served by a more deliberate pace. And so if you're going to do that, if you want to have the action, hey, it's better than having a crane for some random reason crashing into a model shoot where your future girlfriend happens to be posing. So I go with it, but you're right. It's not serving the themes of the story the way Harry is. It's not serving any of the rest of it. It's just there to provide A spectacular action scene. I mean, the best action sequence Spider-Man's ever had on film, but not a lot of great motivation behind it. I'll say that the second best Spider-Man action scene is here at the end with him versus Electro. I swear I played this exact game in Spider-Man Shattered Dimensions on my Xbox 360, where it was against Ultimate Electro, so it was Blue Lightning Bolt Naked Man anyway. But it looked fantastic. Fantastic. Again, this is one of the few 3D films I felt we've really complimented, and I, I think it's because they've slowed things down. They've, you know, we see these flashes of light as Electro goes from Transformer to Transformer, and, you know, it's almost picturesque. It's almost like that end fight scene 
in Ang Lee's Hulk in, in the clouds with Hulk versus Absorbing Man. But it's engaging. I, I enjoyed this stuff. Overall, I, I feel much more engaged in this one than the previous film. The, the action's better. The drama's better. Even the story, even for all these problems we've been talking about with the story, I feel, feel it's still better than what we saw two years ago. Well, yeah, if that's the barometer, I don't remember the battles with the lizard, and I rewatched it last week. No, that was made no impression at all. I don't, I don't think that this end is that great. I'm just going to side with the fact that it feels kind of perfunctory. They have all of this, you know, again, worked in this motif about the falling airplane, and she's now going to get on a plane, and they have some business about somehow they know that all the planes are going to crash in four minutes. I don't even know how they know that, but it, it's involved with time, and we got to work that motif in. Uh, whatever. And Aunt May, how is she going to get electricity in the children's ward? I mean, come, they were they were trying to work in these other things, but again, focus is really lacking in this movie. Did Gwen Stacy and and Peter Parker did they know about the planes? Because I felt like that was just something to create tension, but they didn't even know. They didn't know they were saving these planes from crashing into each other. It just yeah, I agree with Jacob. I don't think they knew that the planes were going to crash. The way the tower knew is because they know the trajectory the planes were on, and if you don't tell them to come in for the landing, then these two are going to hit each other in four and a half minutes. It was there to create tension, but they we didn't care about anyone on the plane. We didn't care about these air traffic controllers. It's not like one of them was Mary Jane's dad, and he was going to have a heroic moment. Like, none of that mattered. If she were actually on the plane to Oxford, it would be a different situation. Okay, it was just me then, because I was there with my hands over my face about those planes. I fly a lot, and midair collision is one of my biggest fears. So I fly a lot, and that's why I don't have fears of flying. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Every time I fly, I am praying to whatever gods exist that I don't hit another plane on my way up or my way down. So I was really worried about this. You got some strange fears. I know you, you're afraid of asteroids and yeah, now plane collisions. <laughs> yes, i petrified of flying. So that really was getting to me. But I'm going to start spelling out how the end fight mirrors the early fight. Spider-Man gets his ass handed to him by Electro at the beginning. And he's down, and Electro goes, I bet you didn't see this coming, and is about to kill him. And that's when Gwen Stacy, who was left, Spider-Man webbed her so she couldn't come to this fight, trying to protect her. Right after she pulled out her Bill Nye the Science Guy knowledge, saying, you gotta magnetize your webs, that's the key to fighting Electro. Like, let me pull that out of my butt and give you that science fact. I wish we could do phone a friend, because I still don't understand exactly what magnetism does against that much voltage but maybe a valedictorian science student listener can write to me and spell yeah, yeah. it out yes are there any high school students that understood this you can explain it if you can put it to me in monosyllabic words i'd appreciate it but she saves peter whereas on the airplane Richard Parker's about to be shot when who comes from behind but Mary Parker with the champagne bottle. It is mirroring how it's going to go, the first fight and the end fight. Huh, I thought it was just mirroring action cliches. Like, I bet you didn't see that coming. No, no, I totally saw Gwen Stacy coming in and driving in to save the day coming. Yeah, I agree. I don't think any of this stuff is revelatory or even that exciting. But better than last time. If that's your bar, it is better than last time. I do think it's a little heavy-handed, though, and maybe because I knew she was dying, but when she's standing there giving a speech, before the Electro fight is done, they're still fighting Electro, <laughs> Electro's merely dazed, she goes, I'm here because this is my choice, it's my choice to be here, so that nobody can walk out going, that Spider-Man killed his girlfriend, it was her choice to be here. 
No, they really, at this point, they really want to make it seem like a team. And at this point, they are a team. They're going to go to London together, so why won't they defeat Electro together? She was the one to figure out how to make his web slingers work with all of that voltage. She's the one that can turn on the power grid. Which is, is getting a key from a dead dude and pushing a button. Well, yeah, fair enough. And it was really fortunate that Corpse's hand was upraised with the key. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, the other option is not have a lock on it, which I would have also gone with. Yeah, I know. Fair enough. But what Spider-Man is doing is he's giving his life. He is sacrificing. He is going to be the conduit by which all of this electricity, once the power switch is thrown, is going to shoot through to kill Electro. Do they cheat by just having him, like, fall over and be fine? I think that doesn't make any sense. I don't even understand how his webs can conduct enough electricity to power all of Manhattan. They've been magnetized. They're supposed to repel the energy, I thought. They only magnetized the web shooters. The webs. Oh, okay. The, so the electricity traveled on the webs. It just didn't blow up the battery in his web shooters. Apparently, those things use lithium cells. Yes. So <laughs> I don't understand any of it. I just had to go with it, yeah. Earlier in the movie, Harry says, you got spider healing powers. I guess electro... Listen, Electro's not dead either. There's a Sinister Six movie coming. So nobody <laughs> died. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that is a surprise to me. One person does die, though, but it, it's not in this scene. No. And, hey, maybe Jamie Foxx has better things to do, something for Tarantino, than a Sinister Six film. He, he's as dead as the movie wants him to be. But we saw him evaporate earlier in the film just to teleport. He evaporates here. They say they blew him up. We'll see. But it's not over. Did you guys think it was a mistake that the attacks came one-on-one? -on -one? That it was Spider-Man versus Electro and then Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin? Like, you have your boss fight, then your final boss fight, instead of the two of them teamed up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about what what is the timeline of this film, so I, I don't know if it was during this fight. I mean, Harry has gone to Oscorp, and he's broken in to get the spider venom. Is that happening as this fight's going on? Or does it just take him a really long time to use his little hover glider to get over to the power grid? Added to my confusion of that is, does the venom make him more goblin-ish? As far as I can tell, Chris Cooper was like in his 50s when he was turning into the goblin. So uh, this kid's got at least a few more decades before it becomes really severe here. Why is he all of a sudden transformed for this final fight? I took it as his father had 30 years of scientific help to limp along, and he would have died 30 years earlier if it hadn't been for what little things they could find. A little lizard DNA here, an electric eel there, a spider bite just for, I mean, it's almost wizardry. You know, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, he gets to live to 51. But the spider venom has some reaction with his goblin DNA, and I don't know. I mean, I said it in the plot summary. It somehow gives him a much more stylish hairdo. I mean, he's gone yeah. from the bangs to the spike. I, I don't know if it's stylish. He, he looks even weirder once that hair is <laughs> gelled up with his uh, Axe hair product. I was definitely getting a Stephen Jeffries vibe, though, Stuart. You're not alone on that one when he's... and. The suit, this is the most contrived thing in the whole film. When he sets that box on the desk, the first thing he looks at is some battle healing suit that's supposed to, you put it on, I guess, in a war zone to help you heal your wounds. I had not seen Oscorp doing military contracting in this film. 
They, well, they had dropped hints that there was some military stuff going on. He goes straight for the spider venom first, and then I guess that doesn't work, so he crawls over to the suit, puts that on, and it makes a big deal like it's healing him or it's doing something. Like, why didn't you just try the suit first off? Like, instead of injecting yourself with poison, why not walk around in an awesome battle suit for a while? I, I think you've got it with that, Jacob. I want to tell all of our listeners, I pride ourselves on giving public service announcements. Do not take a toxic substance in large quantities and inject it into your veins. <laughs> that is never a good idea. I think he was dying of spider poisoning, and the suit fought it off. Yeah, and if you're going to do that, certainly don't operate a motor vehicle like a flying hovercraft. Uh, you know, we needed this scene. Again, you could cut Electro from this movie entirely. He does not matter. It had to be Goblin. It had to be about Goblin using Gwen to lure Peter slash Spider-Man into a big battle. It and I still stayed, I think that would have been movie three, had Webb had his way, and we would have had the Harry-Peter friendship here, and Gwen dies at the end of the third movie she signed on to do. Yes, but the clock is ticking. Quite literally, the, <laughs> the fight is taking place in the clock tower. They've used that motif again and again throughout this movie. They knew that if they protracted this for another movie, there may be no interest. There may be no third movie if they were too boring in this one. So, yeah, they sped it up. And thank God they did. But, yes, this final fight, it mirrors that first one again. Peter takes his web and wraps it around Harry's neck, just the way the assassin on the airplane took the seatbelt and wrapped it around Richard's neck. Both Richard and Peter are holding on to something. Richard's trying to hold on to that laptop. Peter's trying to hold on to Gwen. They're both underneath their attackers. Green Goblin on top of Spider-Man and the assassin on top of Richard. I think they really went out of their way to choreograph these fight scenes similarly. What's astounding to me is of the fights, I actually think the one on the airplane had more excitement. It's really fast, though. I mean, the Electro fight went on for a while. It had round one. It had round two. Electro's winning. Spider-Man's winning. Harry, I mean, he gets there. He's like, you're Peter. You lied to me. I'm going to take your girl. And, I mean, it is really quick. It's seconds before he's way high up in the air with Gwen. They do fool you a couple of times. He drops her, and I'm like, oh, is she dead? Oh, Spider-Man saved her. Oh, they fell through the roof. Is she dead? Oh, Spider-Man webbed her on the arm, so she lived. And they're they're messing with me. I'm like, I know you're killing her. Yeah. <laughs> it's when is it coming, exactly. What fall will be the one that she does not get saved from? And what will Spider-Man's role be? I like the way that it kind of plays here. He is still a her hero. He does web her in time. But, of course, she's just fallen a little bit too far that by the time he's grabbed onto her, she's already conking her head. Or, I took it as the mystery of the comic always was, did the goblin kill her, or was it that web grabbing her after that fall? Did it snap her back? And that's how I took this, is that her back was snapped, and that's what killed what? her. No, she hit her head. I saw it. No, no. I didn't see any impact on the ground. I, all right, three watchings. First watching, I didn't see her hit the ground. She's webbed at the stomach. It's a sudden stop that would snap your spine. Second watching, wasn't quite sure. Third watching, she might have hit the ground too. Yeah. So it's, you didn't help at all, Artie. Yeah, so you're I'm going to be down the middle, are you? <laughs> I'm going to frame by frame this and say it's ambiguous. All right, I'm sticking by mine. I saw what you saw. She was caught. And maybe, okay, maybe that killed her. I didn't get that sense. To me, it was that her head definitely had some kind of impact on the ground, even though her body did not. 
I like how they usually, you know, we know where this is going, but even though I, I'm like, oh, okay, this is the death. Like, I like the little touches. I love that web going down and how, like, the little tendrils at the end, like, reach out, like, for that final reach to grab her. I, I feel, even though I, once she started falling, I'm like, okay, I know what's coming. I still felt like there's some dramatic weight to it. And it definitely got a reaction from the audience. A lot of people weren't expecting that. And they were shocked. And I even felt like when Garfield gets down there and he's just holding her and crying, there got some emotion in me. I, I felt some sadness there. It, it won me over. Again, the acting is what really sets these films apart, even when the stories aren't great. And here again, it's selling the death of Gwen Stacy to me. I actually really liked the CGI of the web, the way it's reaching out for her, even if I was taken out of it a little bit, because in the first shot, I'm like, is that spooch? I mean, it kind of looks spoochy, <laughs> but it fixes itself pretty quick. And I was wondering, though, would he web her? Would he break her back? Would he miss? There's all these clock gears flying around. I'm like, yeah, I'm waiting for the web to hit a gear. Yeah. yeah. Could he get a clear shot to hit her? Is he going to hit her and she's still going to die? Is he going to shoot and miss or is he not going to be able to shoot at all? But they take it right out of the comic book. I'll say this because of the good acting between these two for this movie specifically, but also the history of the last one. I was sad. I felt bad. They killed Gwen Stacy. She's been dead most of my life, but when they kill her on screen, I got a little bit emotional. It's as close to as emotional as I got. I, I, because it was so telegraphed, it was hard to be fully impacted the way that it was for some of the audience members. For my mom, for example, that was the one comment she had walking out of the movie was, I really didn't think they were going to kill her. That was what her takeaway was all of the rest of it was just noise and light and fury. But this was the heart of the movie. It was the heart of both the movies. Last movie too. What are they going to do without the heart? That's what I'm thinking about here. Watching her. He may also be bearing this whole franchise because without her, I don't know what Spider-Man means. I didn't really like Mary Jane in the Raimi movie. So they're going to have to work to make me like what's coming next. I do have to say, though, and maybe it's because I know my comics and I listened to her speech and I knew she was dying. But you mentioned Nolan a lot this podcast, Stuart. We mentioned Nolan a hell of a lot last podcast with the first movie. This is no Rachel. This is no killing of Rachel by the Joker. This is far lesser than that. When they killed Rachel, I was like floored. I had like almost a sensation of vertigo in the theater that I couldn't believe the movie had gone there and done it so viciously and killed her with her little speech. Here, this is lesser. It's still shocking that in a Spider-Man movie with such kiddie moments, they went there, but it does not have the impact on me that The Dark Knight did. And I think the problem is, are those kitty moments? It's This is an uneven film, and if this was a more serious film, played more of the drama up. I, I really like the dramatic parts. There's some great action scenes, but the dramatic parts really stand out. And if this was a more balanced story, if they maybe if they would have got rid of all that Electra stuff, and this was about Peter, Harry, and Gwen, it, it could have had that impact. There, there's just this villain. This is no Joker. And so I think that's part of the impact with Rachel dying is that it really shows you how far the Joker is willing to go. And Heath Ledger gives such a great performance that, that it just makes it all that much more powerful here. It doesn't have that weight because it's not a Nolan film. It, it just doesn't, there's not the seriousness there to make me feel, I mean, I, I'm sad at this moment, but no, it doesn't have that same weight to it. And not only that, but they want to put a Band-Aid on it right away. Leave the movie with tragedy. Let us feel that. 
Let us have the last moment in this movie be him at the graveside and take that risk. Don't tell me that Aunt May with a box of Ben's goods is going to get him over this. The other thing is, I mean, that's the end of the fight. It wasn't until my second viewing. When I walked out the first time, I was so into the Gwen Stacy death. I'm like, did they beat the Green Goblin? I know I see him in a prison cell later on. What the hell happened to Gobby? I mean, in the comic... Yes, Gwen Stacy died, but that enraged Spider-Man so much, he went after the Green Goblin like never before. That's when the Goblin impaled himself on his own glider. You killed the Goblin. It was two deaths. I mean, two issues, but same arc right next to each other. It was so emotional. It meant so much to Peter and Spider-Man that Gwen died that he had to take it out there. Are you telling me that this Peter Parker is so goddamn mopey that Harry is off in the corner going, I got hit on the head and he's just going (laughs) to web him and he lives? That takes away from the death of Gwen that there was no anger, only sadness. No, I... I like that there is just sadness. I mean, there there is so much foreshadowing. He's having visions of Gwen's dad over and over, and he knew he had screwed up. This is the right direction to take it. I like there was that early montage where he's fighting crime after he breaks with Gwen and like loses himself in his work, and it's just that closet door opening over and over. I like that montage at the gravesite where it's just showing him through the seasons, and and eventually they reveal it's been five months. But yeah, I, I feel like that should have been the crux of this story is him dealing with the death and deciding if he does become Spider-Man again. You know, I, I feel that was the more powerful moment, but that's given three minutes here in a speech by Aunt May. I think that's the start to your next movie. Have it start off the next time being there's no more Spider-Man and everyone's concerned because villains are taking over. Though we did see that in Dark Knight Rises. Please have that be the start of the next movie so that we don't have Rhino to talk about in this one. (laughs) Come on, you're just upset, Arnie, because you're going to pay for some collectible that was in the film for five minutes. I I could believe this. (laughs) I like the Rhino from the comics. I'd like a Rhino toy. I couldn't believe, I could not believe that in the trailers of a movie, they show you the last frames of the flipping movie. (laughs) What bullshit is that? When I see a trailer and you see a fight and two heroes are going at each other or hero and villain are going at each other, I pay my money to see what happens next. And here, that's that's the art of trailer making. I mean, you've talked about so many lines that were cut that you saw in trailers for this film. I really did wonder. I'm like, oh, are they just cutting the rhino out of this film? Because I I thought it was much more powerful to end on the sad note. Like when they cut to this, I'm like, oh, so this is just a cameo. But I got to wonder, Arnie, are you upset because you're a fan of Spider-Man and the toys and the comics? Like for me, if I'm just watching this objectively, okay, this is Spider-Man. This is his comeback. Who's this rhino in this It doesn't really matter. I'm not as invested. It's just a way to bring Spider-Man back at the end. I can't parse myself that way. All I know is it's been five days since I first saw War Rhino here and realized that Sony's like, well, we can't have Iron Man or War Machine or Iron Monger, so let's just take a character called the Rhino and turn him into that. But this whole thing is so ridiculous. From Paul Giamatti, I'm back, to the machine guns, to how awful the rhino looks this is all bad and what makes it even worse for me is that this rhino with norman with electro that's half of this sinister six movie that they're planning so we're gonna have a whole movie of staring at paul giamatti in this armored suit 
I'm going to give this film one last bit of credit. Maybe I was still a little bit emotional after Gwen, but when the little boy goes out in the Spider-Man outfit, I never fall for let's put the kid out there. But little Jorge, <laughs> who Spider-Man had saved from bullies earlier in the film, he stands out there. Alexi stops shooting. Are you afraid of Alexi? And the boy stands there and then Spider-Man comes. It got me. That was a good moment. They kept driving this point of that, that Spider-Man is hope. That's why Harry is so let down by Spider-Man because he won't give him his blood and he has no hope. And it felt like something they were doing with Man of Steel where they, the S stands for hope and that destroys all of Metropolis <laughs> at the end of the film. At least that didn't happen here. I do like these moments. Like again, I feel like this is the Spider-Man mythos. In those Raimi films, they had some moments that seemed too pandering with the kids all in their Spider-Man costumes. But in the last film, you know, that whole scene with the, the construction workers lining up the crane so Spider-Man can sling him shot to Oscorp. Like, uh, it's kind of corny, but like that feels like a Spider-Man moment. And this here, it feels like a Spider-Man moment. Like this little kid is going to be the one that stands up and, and Spider-Man comes in and like thanks him. Like, I'm sure the rhino would have just put a bullet through Spider-Man's head while he was talking to the kid. And the kid's head for good measure. Yeah, but I like this moment. This feels like this is what Spider-Man is at his core. That, sure, you could be cynical and say this is marketing to the kids. This is how we sell more costumes to the They kids. didn't use but the I Hasbro like mask. I know this for a fact. Had they used the Hasbro <laughs> mask and disc shooter, I would have called it pandering and marketing. But because they had the costume designer work up a suit, it touched me. It's not pandering, but it is talking to the primary audience. It is kids and the kids at heart that want to wear that costume. If you want to be Spider-Man, this is the moment for you. It left me a little hollow. I thought it was corny and not in a good way, but I understood what they were doing here. Paul Giamatti is the bookend. He was the fight for Spider-Man at the beginning that showed you who he was at his best and showed you his comedy and, and, and the lightness. And we know he's returned to that. He's not going to be mopey next movie. They don't have to have him be impacted by Gwen's death because we get it in this final bookend. He's going to take on the Rhino with the same kind of quips and the same kind of attitude that he had for Giamatti at the start. I'm just a little bit upset. Maybe because I watched Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 back to back. But how many emotional messages is he going to get by voicemail? I mean, Uncle Ben left him that voicemail. So after Uncle Ben was dead, he could still tell Peter it'll be okay. And then his father dies. He leaves him a QuickTime video. And now Gwen <laughs> Stacy has this speech about I wish for you to be hope on her graduation thumb drive. <laughs> Yeah, that someone filmed and put the video on there. Uh, it just, it seems they've gone back to that well one too often for me. But no, I'm, I'm happy Spider-Man's back. I like your idea of ending it on a sad note to bring us to the third one. Despite their talk of franchising, I'm not so convinced given that they rushed what I believe to be three movies into two, that they're so sure, not again, that there won't be a Spider-Man movie, but that it may not be Mark Webb's Spider-Man. What are you talking about, Arnie? Didn't you see the the teaser for the next Spider-Man film during the mid-credits? No. First of all, that's confused the hell out of people. <laughs> people it's were upset over this. <laughs> they were, like, steaming. They're like, why was that in the tr – that has nothing to do with Spider-Man. Why did they do that? All right. To tell the listeners who may not have gone, <laughs> you sit around the credits, right, and you wait for your end credit scene. Well, mid-credits comes a very weird scene that actually did the opposite of the intended effect. There was a scene from the next X-Men movie with Jennifer Lawrence and Havoc. Good to see Havoc coming back. I didn't realize Toad. Toad's in it. 
Toad. Yes, I, I'm watching this. I'm like, so this Toad's one of the Sinister Six? I'm like, that's what I thought they were setting up here. And then Mystique shows up. I'm like, what the hell? Like, these aren't even the same studios, right? Did Fox just back up a ton of money to get this put in there? But most people don't know about the studio things. They don't understand. And so many people walked out of this theater and I heard them talking. Oh, the next movie, Spider-Man and X-Men. They thought they were going oh, that no. way with it. They thought that this wasn't a commercial for a movie opening in three weeks. They thought this was a tease like Avengers that Spider-Man and the X-Men are going to be sharing the screen come 2016. And why wouldn't they be confused? I mean, you put trailers at the beginning of the movie. If this is just to be a different franchise, which quite frankly looks like it's already stuffed with enough characters, why imply that Spider-Man's going to come web-slinging in there when we know perfectly well he never will? Fox and Sony will never allow that to happen. Well, I don't know. I mean, Sony allowed Fox this trailer. I would never say never. This is a level of cooperation I wouldn't have expected anyway. I mean, would you have said three months ago that Sony would allow Fox to put a trailer in their credits? Well, indeed, they do have to fight Marvel Studios. We know that they're never going to give their licenses <laughs> up. So if it takes Spider-Man and X-Men to unite against the Marvel Universe, eh, maybe that will happen. But it's not happening in three weeks when this new movie, X-Men, opens up. Days of Future Past, it is just a blatant, ballsy advertisement. It has nothing to do with Spider-Man. And I was surprised. I had read about this. I knew it was coming. But I was surprised that there was no mention of Spider-Man at all. I thought, at the very least, they could walk by a TV monitor where Spider-Man was taking down the rhino and we saw a conclusion <laughs> to that fight. No, what happened was, I read up on this, Mark Webb, after 500 Days of Summer, was under contract with Fox. And he went over and did Spider-Man for Sony. Sony wanted Webb to do the sequel. I don't know why after the first one, which I recommended, but I don't know that he's worth fighting for. <laughs> <laughs> and so the deal made was Fox would let Webb out of his contract, not for money, but for Sony putting an ad for Fox's movie in their movie. And I guess Sony's like, well, Spider-Man will have made his money by then, so why not? Is Fox aware that there was a bigger, better trailer before the film for X-Men Days of Future Past? And this scene from X-Men was so confusing. And I'm sure I'll have answers in three weeks. But why are they on a military base? Why is Stryker there? Who's the mutant with the tattoos? What the bleep is going on? Oh, that was Stryker. Oh, see, you're telling me things I didn't even understand. Yeah, I, it was confusing. <laughs> yeah. It was it was out of context. I was just in, in such a state of confusion. Like, I could not get my bearings on what I was seeing until Mystique showed up. And then I'm like, what? Like, it was so confusing to me. Like, by the time it ended, I couldn't make sense of it. Yeah, it's not a trailer, it's a scene. And the problem with that is it's a scene out of context. And now, I honestly have been seeing the trailers with so many X-Men characters in the next movie that I'm worried. Watching that scene makes me think, screw it, I won't be able to keep up. I should take Friday off work and do what I did with Phantom Menace and just go to every showing of X-Men so I can talk about it, because there's going to be so many goddamn characters. That podcast is going to be six hours of us discussing all <laughs> 300 characters they shoved in. Yeah, but they're going to have to wait for it. We have to talk about the man in the hat, because I read three novels. Not for this podcast. You brought me okay. here, you said, for a reason, Jacob. I am the Spider-Man fan. Well, this guy in a hat, we saw him at the end of the last one. We all thought he was Norman. This time, we see him in the cell with Harry. Apparently, he has all access to prisons, or at least Ravencroft, and he gets a name. He's Mr. Fierce, and he's not from any comic book. 
No, I just took him as some kind of like mob boss that they were teaming up with. That's why they got Giamatti the Russian out of jail. So th- this, but this is something deeper. I'm telling you, this is Darth Vader. They're gonna, I'm your father it. <laughs> well, Mr. Fierce comes from a trio of non-canonical Spider-Man prose novels. I actually sought out and read fun Marvel Comics prose novels. I have read these three. Gustav Fierce is known as the gentleman who is really old and worked with the Red Skull during World War II. And in the 60s, Mary and Richard Parker interrupted some of his schemes. And so he wanted revenge on their son, Peter. And he is an information broker. He hires the Sinister Six to go after Spider-Man. There's also a very convoluted plot that involves Peter Parker's long-lost sister who has different powers. I don't think they're going to go there. But that they went to this trio of novels that have been disavowed and published by a publisher with whom Marvel no longer does business. Kudos to you, Mr. Researcher, (laughs) sir. It's dumb freaking luck that I went, oh, my God, those books I read seven years ago. I think the key there you said is that Marvel has disavowed it, so therefore the non-Marvel studios can take all of that, right? They've got to build their own universe if they're going to keep making these movies because as much as we may like it, Marvel is never getting their Spider-Man back. (laughs) Yeah, so this Mr. Fierce, I don't think it'll be Richard Parker just because before Spider-Man 3, they have to bring this man out of the shadows for... The Sinister Six. And there is another scene, but you have to have the Shazam app on your phone. And despite, and you better not be at the Alamo Draft House, because if you're pulling out your phone, they're going to kick you out. Yeah, people were looking at me because I did this. Like, most of the people had walked out, and I waited till almost the end of the credits to watch this scene. Not really a scene. No, it's pretty much the same schematics that you see during the end credits, and you're like, what the hell are those? With just a few extra frames that tease who the Sinister Six will be. It's going to be Vulture, Dr. Octopus. Well, that was already in there. We saw, I saw the octopus arms. Green Goblin, because we see the glider. Rhino, so there's four. Then there's two other symbols. There's this weird mask, which could be chameleon, but the studio has said they think it's Mysterio. They're just not going to go with the Mm. fishbowl on the head. Oh, I know what that is, yeah. And then the last one they said is going to be Craven the Hunter, but it looks to me more like Scorpion. And the studios come out and said, listen, we're trying to tease who these characters are. We haven't even decided who the six are yet. But <laughs> it's not even written, but it'll be out next year. <laughs> I love this kind of corporate mentality. <laughs> so, yes, that was the Shazam scene that I had to. You don't need to download the app if, if, if you care about this scene. There's nothing to see. I had no idea they were doing this kind of thing, but that's, it's the trend, right? It's, it's kids like their phones. We'll, we'll give them something extra if they use their phones during a movie. I think that's sending the wrong message, but okay. Well, they don't even tell you to use your phone. That's the thing. I only knew about it because a website reported it. Well, that makes it cool. See, then you're in the cool (laughs) club and you can feel better than everyone else. I understand about pandering to the geekiest of the geek. I I get that. But it sounds like they didn't deliver on what was was on the phone. You shouldn't put a scene only available via an app that has to be done when you're in the theater. By the same token, you shouldn't put a not scene there either. You know, it's just I get all the corporate marketing, I get the idea, not very well done. And it distracted from the song It's On Again, which I was actually kind of grooving to. No, oh, Arnie. And then that was it, though, the mid credit scene. There was nothing after the credits, and I only stayed once till the end. Fool me once, shame on you. But everybody stayed till the end. 
And when the lights came up, there was this collective howl of disapprovement that there was nothing after all the credits, that everybody sat there and watched all the technicians' names and Andrew Garfield's dialect coach and stunt doubles and got no reward. Now, you mean the Pharrell song wasn't good enough for you to get through? I agree. It wasn't. So, Jacob Stewart, I'm in more suspense than I was last Spider-Man movie. (laughs) Do you recommend The Amazing Spider-Man to Jacob? This still isn't an Amazing Spider-Man film. This Spider-Man for round two, pretty good. Not a whole lot of major complaints. I They solved the problem of not telling an episode, but telling a complete story, which was a big thing for me. I heard all these rumors, we're going to get a Venom film, and we're going to get Sinister Six. I'm like, oh, how many loose threads are we going to see in this film? The, you know, they, they tease things. There's the mysterious man at the end, but this is a self-contained story. I want to recognize that and give big props because in this day and age, we have to give big props to movies for telling complete stories. It's kind of a sad state of affairs, <laughs> but especially the superhero story. But I, I do want to recognize that because it was one of my major complaints two years ago. But you know what? This Look, some of the mysteries and answers given what is Roosevelt? Oh, it's a quick time video and a secret subway station because the president wanted to hide his polio. Okay, it doesn't really play out, but at least we get the mystery solved here. I like the action scenes. Again, the the acting, Garfield and Stone are great. Fox is a problem for me, the way he just goes full carry here (laughs) via the Riddler. That really put me off, but I, I appreciated that they try to tell a more mature story that they try to give the villains and i think for the most part they did give the villains better motivations to be bad guys and so you know what i here's the thing i've been reading about all this hate for this film like it's gotten the it got worse reviews like rotten tomato scores than spider-man 3 i don't get it i don't get the hate for this film much like i don't get the universal praise for spider-man 2 i'm like eh, that's an all right film and that's how i feel about this one Eh, it's all right it's a recommend yeah go see it there's some fun action you'll get some good laughs there's some good drama some pretty good acting it's an improvement from the amazing spider-man so yeah it's it's a mild recommend for me Stuart, spider-man 2 funny you should bring that up my most controversial review i said not recommend on it could i possibly recommend amazing spider-man 2 and dist one of quote the best superhero movies ever made the answer is yes because my barometer is <laughs> thor 2 all it has to do is be as good as thor 2 and it is that is a low low barometer <laughs> it is a low bar and it's a real mixed bag did i like this movie not a whole lot but i like things in it and i think that it was competent and complete and even though i really feel like it fell apart in the last part of the movie where the villains unite i unlike you jacob i think all of that is actually bad but up until that point the love story the genesis of these characters i was more or less okay with it I think that if you're a comic book fan, if you're a Spider-Man fan, you'll probably be okay with it. I am a little surprised, too, that the rumor and the vibes I was hearing that this was one of the worst Spider-Man movies. It's pretty meh, but it's a better meh than many of them. So, mildest of recommends, again, more for other people than for myself. I'll never watch this again, even when Spider-Man 3 comes out, but it's okay, I guess. So if you've lowered the bar, does that mean the original Spider-Man 2 gets a recommend now? I've never seen it again. So I'll tell you what. When Amazing Spider-Man 3 comes out, rather than watch Amazing Spider-Man 2, I will rewatch Spider-Man 2, the Raimi version, and I'll let you know. I think we can all agree then. And this is what I'm hearing from everybody I've talked to 
in person, and then you two, this movie's better than the first Amazing Spider-Man film. Uh, easily. Yeah. I mean, I don't see any way it's not. I find the acting to be better. I find the villains to be better. I find there to be drama. That entire embarrassing Martin Sheen origin story, every time I watch that first movie, <laughs> Martin Sheen gets worse. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I, he's <laughs> never been worse in his life. I agree. I mean, I'd still give that film a green arrow, but my God, that scene with the stolen milk. <laughs> it's really just a terrible, terrible scene. And that's, in fact, the only question that this movie didn't answer from the first one. I came into this movie, and I had written down a list of questions that the first movie left open that I felt really had to be explained. One was, where did Peter Parker's parents go? That was the biggest one. All of that with the man in the hat. Well, I feel like they continued the man in the hat, but they put the parent thing to bed. I think we can be done with it. Again, if they bring Webb back, and I think they might, even though I don't think they should, I think that they may still go with the sins of the father. Two other questions I had. Is the lizard still scaly? He didn't look completely healed. Well... Reese Ivins, he's kind of a cantankerous personality. He was kicked out of Comic-Con. Maybe they didn't want the lizard in their Sinister Six, so we don't know. The final question, the only one they haven't answered, what happened to Uncle Ben's killer? And that is more where I think they could draw on a Spider-Man 3. Maybe maybe he turns into Venom. Just don't pull a Sandman. <laughs> well, I mean, they can't pull a Sandman because they never told us who the killer was, right? I mean, that that's the difference, is it's not a retcon, it's an explanation in this case. But for this movie, yeah, I think it's a good movie. I sat there, and I'd heard the stuff, too, about Rotten Tomatoes. I try not to get too into it, but I went in with low expectations, partially set just by the social media I use personally every day. And an hour into this movie, the first watching, I had an epiphany. I'm not hating this. I'm supposed to hate this. When does this movie suck? When does this movie turn Batman and Robin bad? And it had many opportunities where I'm like, ah, here it goes. When they went to Ravencroft Institute and Dr. Kafka came up or all of that. And when they teamed up and they went back into the base or when Gwen Stacy died, all of these could have been the moment. But at the hour mark, I'm like, I'm enjoying myself at this movie. Why is the hate? And I just kept waiting for the thing to happen that would explain the hate to me. It never did. I don't get why anyone can say this is the worst Spider-Man movie of all time when A, Spider-Man 3 is out there as still the only theatrical Spider-Man to get a red arrow from me, and B, this is such head and shoulders above the last one. I don't get anyone who says it's not. The thing I see, though, I always go back to Batman Begins. The I didn't recommend it, but that end speech, but my most controversial review, if we're going to bring them up, Stuart, the one that gets me the most hate mail, Batman Begins. But I always go back to the end scene with Gordon and Batman, and Gordon's like, what about escalation? You've done this, what about escalation? And I keep equating that to the superhero movies themselves. We've had escalation. And I think it was really started by X-Men in 2000, the new renaissance. Spider-Man took it to the next level with comic immersion. And then we had a one-two punch of Iron Man and Dark Knight. And then we had Avengers come along. And then I'd say the next step is even Captain America, the Winter Soldier this year. Superhero movies keep getting better. But I'd say Spider-Man's like Bon Jovi. 30 years have passed, they're still playing the same song. Superhero movies have gotten better. Spider-Man's where it was. It's I'd say this is almost on par with the Raimi films. It just hasn't improved with the times the way Captain America, Iron Man, and Batman have. So 
in this age of superb superhero films, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is lesser. But is that bad? No, it just means in recent years people have come to expect more. I enjoyed myself all three times at this movie. I give it a green arrow. I recommend you put aside the hate and give this movie a try. Yeah, I think that's a fair review, and I would just qualify with my own review. Yeah, if you are someone that selects about which superhero ones you do see, yeah, this is a not recommend for me. But if you're less discriminatory, if you just like going and seeing this genre, it's as good as as many of them. It's just kind of average, and in this day and age, maybe that's not good enough for some people. But it was good enough to get a green arrow. And good enough to get... How many sequels are they making to this now? They're talking like they're doing... A Venom spinoff, the Sinister Six spinoff. Is that Avengers with bad guys? Is that what they're trying to actually do? That sounds crazy to me, like we could have a super team of villains, but destroying things for two hours? (laughs) I don't envy the director of Cabin in the Woods is the one taking that on. Oh, well, you know, he has a sense of irony that would be appreciated in that kind of scenario. I also find it funny because he's a former Whedon disciple now working for the enemy. Not the mutant enemy, just the enemy. Ah, I see. Then maybe they think some of that will rub off. It seems like a ballsy attempt to try and do Avengers without really understanding what made Avengers Avengers. And they don't even know if Andrew Garfield's going to be in that movie. So how do you have a Sinister Six that's doing something other than seeking revenge against Spider-Man? I mean, I just... If you take Spider-Man out of that equation... Good luck. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think the Harry Osborne we saw here has shown me he can carry a film. <laughs> but yeah, then they're talking Venom and they're talking, I mean, Venom brings with him a whole family of symbiotes with carnage and anti-venom and toxin and all <laughs> she-venom. Yes, that exists. And they then- should just make the musical <laughs> and be done with it. And then they said Mark Webb is signed for a third Spider-Man film. He says he's going to make it as of now. I mean, we heard the same thing from Favreau after Iron Man 2. He also says no matter what, he's not making Spider-Man 4, which they're already scripting. Then why delay it? I honestly say no harm against Mark Webb as a director. I think he's suited for romance movies. I think that he's good at that, and he's good at that in these movies. But overall, I think this movie suffered from having a lack of direction, and some of that's got to be on the director, right? I mean, yeah, maybe he was strong-armed by the studio. Maybe it was you know the toy makers telling him, do this, throw the rhino in. But at the end of the day, the director takes the blame. So, yeah, let's have someone else take a crack at Spider-Man. I agree. I've not been ensnared in Mark's web. These Spider-Man movies have been fine. I want somebody in here with a different vision, though. The whole vibe isn't jiving with me. I get that this is the young people's Spider-Man. I asked on Facebook, which Spider-Man do you prefer, Raimi's or Garfield's? Uh, Notice I don't even call it webs. I don't even give him that kind of auteur (laughs) kind of credit. And... It seems to be split along a generational line that, like, 22 and under likes this one, Mm. and 25 and over prefer Raimi's, because that's what we know and grew up with and what have you. And so I get that this has clicked with a lot of people. A lot of people responded saying Raimi's are shit. I mean, (laughs) there are people who really don't believe those are good films. Those people are wrong. Here are reviews. But there's people who believe that. But this universe, especially, like I said, in this day of superhero films... We can do better, and I'd like to see us do better. Yeah. I'm not saying reboot again. I'm not saying 
recast or anything. No. Just bring in a different director, you know? So let's see what can happen. It could go way wrong, Shane Black, Iron Man 3. It also could go way right. So far, none of the Spider-Man movies have impressed me the way that the best Marvel movies have. And that's what they should aim for. They should aim for making something as good as Dark Knight, not copying Dark Knight. Well, speaking of comic book type archetypes and cartoons and movies with sequels that may or may not be better than the original, let's not forget this Friday, our review of The Matrix Reloaded comes out. <laughs> Controversial. Yeah. A lot of people, they've, they've dropped The Matrix. I was reading the re- comments on Facebook. They, they've forgotten about The Matrix because of these sequels. So yeah, good time to revisit them and, and see what it's like uh, with some passage of time. Right. I think that's important. Again, Star Trek is my go-to. I didn't like the movies when I saw them, but give some time and some perspective that comes with time. Maybe in their own way, they're recommendable, even though I don't think they're going to be as good as the first one. No, I don't. But I I think that it could be a more interesting conversation that we have once we talk about the very flawed sequels. Yes, that is available this Friday. We've already reviewed two movies in our Silver Donation series, the original Matrix and then the Animatrix. Nine animated short films. It's the most things we've ever reviewed in one session. Those are all available to those who support our show because all of these IMAX tickets, all three of us went to IMAX and we also had a really weird week last week where like, Tens of thousands of people visited our website and ate up our bandwidth and transferred 300 gig in two days. So we rely on your support and we're not selling the Matrix podcast. We're asking you to support our show. And for those who do, our thank you if you donate $10 or more, our five bonus reviews, four for the Matrix and then Jupiter Ascending. I just got to see the trailer for the first time before Spider-Man and that's looking matrixy it looks like we put it in the right retrospective yeah i agree it could be a gender twist on the matrix a decade later but we'll we'll see what it is in another month in between that time before we get to jupiter ascending we are going to take a look at another sci-fi series with probably a mixed track record but definitely worth considering planet of the apes Starting with 1968 Charlton Heston, all the way through this new movie, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It's coming out in July. That's eight films for our gold level. Plus, you'll get The Matrix when you get the gold level donation. That is 13 podcasts total. We've never offered such a deal. We're hoping that you join us all summer long for sci-fi. You can find the details by going to our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com, and clicking at the banner on the top. And while we're entering the Matrix on our donation feed, we're going to be going beyond cyberspace here for the next two weeks on the primary feed. Yes, we're going back to Stephen King, sort of, if he doesn't sue us for calling it that, (laughs) and discussing the Lawnmower Man. Yes, as bad as you may feel like the Matrix sequels are, let's take a look at this. (laughs) The sort of dawn of cyberspace in films. I, I... can't say I'm excited to see it again, but I have stories to tell when we talk about Lawnmower Man. So we'll be back next week with the Lawnmower Man. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And remember, with great podcasts come great responsibility. It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. Spider-Man was a hero. I just 
couldn't see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now Playing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. It's good to have you back, Spider-Man. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. It's hip, it's now, it's wild, and how? Crawl on the World Wide Web to NowPlayingPodcast.com. You can find reviews of other comic-based movie series, such as The Avengers, Batman, X-Men, Blade, Ghost Rider, and Punisher. What are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go! We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Rocky, Transformers, The X-Files, Tron, and many more. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I'm so loving this. Oh, me too. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. It came. Looks like just in the nick of time. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll be there. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I'm going. I'll be here when you get back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. You can find a donate button using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Meet. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. Now Playing's Spider-Man Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Misery, 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 that's what you've chosen. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And I've never even seen his face. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Columbia Pictures. Spider-Man and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company. And no infringement is intended. What are you, his lawyer? Get out of here. Let him sue me. Get rich like a normal person. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I missed the part where that's my problem. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. Enough said. Test. Testing, test. Test one, two. Mary Jane Spider-Man, Harry Osborne. Test one, two. There we go. Time zone. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, two of us in the same room. This hasn't happened in a long-ass time. Midnight Meat Train. Midnight Meat Train, yep. Long time ago, your first review. Yep. Sprung on me, surprise! Like you were like, "Oh, put on these headphones." Why? Oh, I don't know. It'll be fun. Wait, wait. What's <laughs> happening? What's with the laptop? A show? Huh? Norman was sent away to boarding school. Harry, Harry. I, I, I told Stuart while I was typing this. I keep typing Norman when I mean Harry. The web slinger, and he wants a remax, and he wants a rematch. <laughs> was not <Yeah>. intentional. <laughs> He wants to sell his house. That I'm 13 times that age. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> and you, I.
No one should be licking Spider-Man's glove, first of all. It's not clean. And second of all, nobody wants Jamie Foxx saliva on... Well, maybe there are some women who want Jamie Foxx saliva on them. But apparently from the D-Train, he went into the Lawnmower Man Part 2. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but was I the only one thinking that with the train car that emerged from the tracks and had all the computer equipment? I wasn't thinking Lawnmower Man Part 2. I don't... Yeah, I don't know what that is. I guess that's a spoiler for me, but wasn't there, wasn't... As he's becoming friends with... Is it Norman? Harry. Harry. Damn it. As he's becoming friends with Harry. (laughs) Busting out tasers to get into Raven... What is it? Ravencraft? Raven... Yeah. All of a sudden, he's busting out... Craft. All of a sudden, he's busting out tasers to break into Ravencraft and and free... free, Is it Croft? Okay. I'm liking what Jamie Kennedy is doing. <laughs> you an ex. I missed that scene. <laughs> Please don't bring Jamie Kennedy into this. What are the rules for superhero movies? <laughs> uh, I like what Jamie... <laughs> Versus uh, his dad. I don't remember what his name was. Um, David Banner. I don't remember who the character was supposed to be, though. He had some, Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, man. Some... They're all something man. Absorbing yeah. man. The Hulk versus... I agree. I've not been ensnared in Mark's web. I, <laughs> I apologize. Just that one was it. bad. He just had... I'm giving him the glare of, of evil right now, people. So you don't have to send the hate mail. I've done it for you.